And uh, one of these artists is going to be joining us this morning, I believe. Uh, so in the meantime, while I find out what's going on, I'm going to play another one from McLean and Quinn. Um, I love it. Look what the light did. It's so awesome. Because <laughs> it's a beautiful, bright, sunny day in the San Francisco Bay Area. Perfect day to um, celebrate the conclusion of the Ramadan fast and congratulate those who were able to keep the fast and those who supported um, those who were fasting and fed the hungry and tried to keep a smile on their face and just be the kind of person for the past 30, 28, 29, 30 days that one wants to be for the rest of the the year. So, um, Edel, um, Edel Fitter, um, Eve Mubarak, um, uh, and today the um, the celebration is at uh, San Pablo Park, and it should be starting very soon, uh, the prayer and the talk, and then there's going to be food and activities for the whole family, so you can go hang out and enjoy um, a day with um with other folks. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'll make leading Quinn look what the light did.
know what's going on, but we are going to shift into um, another mode right now. My guest um, is not able to make it, so we are going to play something from the archives. Um, yeah, <laughs> the only thing is it's just going to be a teaser because we're not going to be able to play the whole interview. But uh, a couple of years ago, um, uh, there was a really wonderful production um, entitled Black Butterfly, and it looked at uh, incarceration of youth. And it was a really beautiful play. And I had the um, the playwright and director on my show. Oh, yeah, I remember we had some issues. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Hmm. Well, I'm already, I am already told you we're going to play it. So I will, um, I'm going to play it and we'll see what it looks like, um, you know, what it sounds like. But it was a really good interview. Um, but I think we kept on getting disconnected. So, um yeah, we're having one of those mornings. Hmm, I wonder if the, something is in retrograde. But anyway, enjoy. <laughs> and uh, then um, at uh, 9, we're going to be um, uh, joined by, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I'm thinking, yeah, why don't I play Sor Torian Sor? I'll play Tor, uh, Sor Torian Sor, um, which I have all of that. And... Um, that's a really um, wonderful interview with the two directors of um, of one of the features. Oh, I think that might be our guest. That might be LeVar. Let me see. <laughs> Good morning. Is that you, LeVar? It is. How are you? Oh, super. I was just talking to myself. Like, okay, what are we going to do? My guest is not joining uh, me. Oh, super. I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, I got, I, I got the timing a bit off. Oh, no problem. So where are you presently? Where are you calling us from? Are you in uh, the Bahamas um, or are you here? No, I'm in the U.S. I'm in Bloomington, oh, okay. Indiana. Ah, hmm, Bloomington, Indiana. I don't think yeah. I've ever been there. <laughs> uh, there's nothing much here. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> wow, wow. It was so great meeting you at the opening of this wonderful exhibition, Coffee, Rum, Sugar, and Gold, A Post-Colonial Paradox, which is at Moat um, through August 11th. They have these great films and all of this wonderful art uh, in the, uh, the galleries, the um, second and no, second and third floors. And then on the first floor, there's the wonderful um, um, exhibition, uh, Dignity Images, by uh, American artist Bayview Hunters Point. And um, let me read, our, read our, a little bit uh, of your bio to our audience, and then we could talk about what is this um, post-colonial paradox and, you know, and these, these items, coffee, rum, sugar, and gold, that our ancestors were traded and bartered for. Like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, greedy uh greedy Europeans, you know, just sort of like plucking our ancestors, you know, out of their lives and relocating them and making them work for free like what? <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of the story you, of the world. I go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you were born uh in Nassau, Bahamas, and that is a place I definitely need to visit, the Bahamas. Uh, people I don't know. You are just such a wonderful representative with your art and your your person. Um, yeah, it just you know, it just like really makes one want to like get out in the diaspora and, and meet 
meet her people, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 so definitely work, fun. Yeah. yeah. I'll go ahead. So what no, I'll do is I'll let you do an introduction, and then I can chime in after that, um, just to keep it kind of close pieces, I guess. <laughs> or okay. shall I just go ahead and blurb? No, you can go ahead and blurb. Like, you know, you feel called to respond. Go ahead. I mean, oh, I okay, can definitely, get yeah. It's right here. <laughs> oh, cool, cool. Yeah, so definitely from the Bahamas. Um, I moved here um, 2007, I want to say. No, 2004, mm. sorry. So 2004, mm-hmm. and I've been here ever since, um, and kind of stumbled over this notion of research not until graduate school, which was 2011, um, but prior to that, I was trained in the commercial world, so trained as an illustrator, I went to Savannah College of Art and Design, so trained oh, really? there, so... Yeah, so I definitely um, I'm I'm grounded in text and images mm-hmm. from my prior studies. I mean, because anything about Illustrator, so Illustrator pretty much responds to a specific text, especially when you're working editorially. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I would read editorial blurbs and respond. I mean, I'm working along with art directors and that type of stuff, but we respond to to those things. And I did that for about four or five years until my daughter was, no, my daughter wasn't born yet. Was my daughter born? Yeah, my daughter was born until my daughter was born. Mm-hmm. And I'm done with this illustration. I'm done with people telling me what to do. Um, and I want to pursue fine art. And that's how I decided to go back to to school. Um, but just before going to school, I was invited by my country, the Bahamas, um, to represent them in the 2010 Liverpool Biennial. Well, before, mm-hmm. up to that time, I didn't know what a biennial was. Um, mm-hmm. All I knew was they were paying for me to go to Liverpool and um, to produce some work and represent the Bahamas. Um, but once I got there, I, I was able to really see the dynamic of the art world. You know, So I was looking at people from, from countries like Japan, um, Korea, um, the African region, United States, you know, and and now I'm kind of seeing art in a different light, in a less commercial light. And that was another prompt for me to go back to school. And then once I went to school, it became all about research. And the research I'm doing now is a subsidiary of what I was doing then. Um, Obviously, it's six, seven years out of graduate school, but it's tightened up in in a very specific way. Um, And the work that I'm showing now in MOAD, it's the Gundog series, but also the Redbone series. Um, and both of them are coming from very specific but very similar places. Um, so the Gundogs are the dog sculptures. And I initially when I began doing that, I um, I was doing the Gundogs as a shout-out to a local gang in the Bahamas that I grew up around. Um and they, yeah, and they were known as the gun dogs. So it just was like a fun thing I was doing. Um, but the more I began to, to make these things, the more I began to think about the dog, the role of the dog within society, both past and present. Uh, in the past, dogs were used to hunt black and brown bodies, you know, runaway mm-hmm. slaves. Um, so kind of really 
digging into that, but also today, dogs are still being used, police dogs are still being used to hunt black and brown bodies. You know, you know, so so this 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 weird relation, but also counter relationship that happens with, with within the role of this animal within society, both past and present, um, became a thing. And then with the paintings, um, the paintings for me began from my research. So I'm 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 into this Joseph Campbell monomyth thing. So this notion of the hero, the hero's journey. Um, and for years, I was I was building a body of work surrounding it. Um, and for the past four years, I've been spending time in Senegal, um, specifically places like um, Saint Louis, um, Dakar, Tambacounda. I, I spent time in the Sintian village, et cetera, et cetera. But going there and 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 observing, but also. In, in observing, making this exchange between the kids there and myself. Um, and a part of the exchange too is documentation. So I have like tons and tons of documentation from that space that I'm now bringing into the studio. Um, and the series is called Redbone. So Redbones is a, is a terminology that's used in the South, in the US South, to speak about mm-hmm. mulatto. Uh, specifically, I'm not interested in, in, in the notion of the mulatto, but I'm more interested in the term red bones. And I'm making a fictitious story around these, these characters that I'm now creating. And the story is a group of underprivileged kids that are put on the front line by the wealthy within society to fight for their well-being only to be deemed heroes. So the notion of journey and heroism becomes a thing. Um, I'm also pointing to religious um, iconography as a notion of journey and heroism. Um, but also you think about rite of passage, becoming of a man, becoming of an of a, of, of adolescent, becoming of an adult, death, like all of these things are part of this notion of the monomyth. Um, and before now, it's been pretty much borrowing from, from myths that have already been told. But now I'm kind of making my own, not kind of, I am making my own mythology again, spanning, uh, I'm beginning from, from these images, but again, I'm not painting portraits of them. I'm just using them as a jumping off point to, 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 to speak about wider societal issues. Um, you think about this narrative that I'm making, but you could also associate it with being a part of a fraternity or sorority. You can associate it with being in the armed forces. You can t- you can associate it with, with it being um, institutions. You can think about prison systems. We can go on and on and on about things that are very similar to the storyline that I'm um, I'm narrating at the moment. That was a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I didn't want to interrupt because it was so smooth. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so back to the um, <clears throat> to these. Um, to the dogs called um uh the um the gun dogs um which the gun dogs um uh, you mentioned um was a gang you know of youth you know that um did you say you grew up with them or is that what you said they were kind of yeah, yeah group associated yeah mm-hmm. group associated with them um of course i'm not a gangster at all <laughs> 
Oh, but I grew mm-hmm. up, they, they were my friends. So they were my childhood friends who kind right. of went in opposite directions than I did. But mm-hmm. they were still my friends, you know. So so one thing that happened as a as a teenager is when when this gang culture built up, um, I was a part of the public school system. And one year it got so bad that rival gangs within the school that I was in the entire day was, we didn't have classes, the entire day was like a gang war. So we had police, we had stabbings, we had a whole bunch of stuff going on on campus. Mm. And that was towards the end of the school year. And it made the news, so it was all over the news. Girls and guys fighting and stabbing and mm. using objects to to, to, to to abuse each other. Um, and that that was the year that my dad put me out of that school and I went to a private school. So that kind of Mm. changed my trajectory very quickly. So I went from a very gang-related, territorial institution to a Christian institution within a matter of months. And that's what changed my direction. How old were you when you switched from public school to parochial school? Mm, Maybe 15, I'm going to say, 14, 15. Oh, you were a teenager. Okay, so you remember. Yeah, yeah, I was okay. a teen- yeah, 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 I remember very clearly. Yeah, I was a, I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. So I was in, I was oh. in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in ninth grade, um, and I changed. Huh. So I did so, 10th, 11th, and 12th in private school, yeah. in a Christian school. Was it Catholic? No, it was non-den- oh. non-denominational, actually. Um, but we okay. still had chapel every Wednesday and prayed every. It was that was strange, actually, but <laughs> it was it definitely not what I was used to. You know, I was used to a very rugged upbringing. You know, um, mm-hmm. but it changed mm-hmm. me though. You know, it definitely did. Oh wow, interesting. So, so when um. When when the when they had the tariff war in in your school, where were you? How did you stay safe? Did you get under the desk? I mean, go in a closet? What did you no, do? No, no, no. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> um, so the school was on lockdown, and the people who wanted to go after people were going after people. Um, oh. But we were on lock. Yeah, we we were on lockdown for the entire day. Um, yeah, and I chose not to be involved. I mean, and 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 it's kind of strange because I had people from both sides who who were my friends, you know. Um, so my grandmother grew up in the area that that was dominated by the gun dogs, and the people who they were mm-hmm. fighting with were the people in the area that I lived in. So I lived in this area with my dad. Uh, my mom passed when I was very young, when I was nine. So my dad. Mm-hmm grew me up, but after school, I, was, I would go by my grandmother. Um, so from after school to nighttime, I'm by my grandmother. At night, I'm at home with my dad, so I only go to sleep, wake up, go to school. So most of my friends' friends, like who I consider like friends even today, they lived by my grandmother. So that's who I was shouting out when I was making these works. Oh, nice. Yeah. So... What what do your um what do your friends you know your childhood friends think about your work like when they see gun dogs because gun your gun dogs they're made from you know recycled and found 
materials they're made out of cardboard but a um a particularly a particular cardboard deconstructed um Junkaroo Bahamian uh carnival costumes mm-hmm. and found toys yeah. and objects. So these 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 it's sort of like a juxtaposition of like, okay, dogs are they're dangerous, but then they're also fun, and they're also people have them as their family members. Um, think about how so many people don't have children now; they have dogs, and the dogs wear yeah, clothes, yeah. and they they occupy public space, and they don't get off the sidewalk when you walk by. You have to get off the sidewalk, and and move <laughs> over, particularly when they're big. Cause it's like, well, this dog looks like a little horse. Let me move. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, how how is your work received at home? Um, you know, like, what are the conversations of you know that um, your work inspires? What are the conversations? So, I don't. So, I recently had a ten year survey at home about la- last year. This um, well, this time last year, and it was the first mm-hmm. time that I've shown home in over ten years, easily. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, so I think in the Bahamas we have a long way to go when it comes to 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 the to art and understanding art. So to to a lot of people, there these are, I mean, they 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 are representing something. They are representing a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, some people get. I mean, some people know the term gun dog to be associated with a gang. People who grew up, who are probably my age, um, a little older. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so they get it, but they still don't get it. Um, mm-hmm. And and also with that terminology, I'm kind of subverting it too. So I know the gun dog as a gang, but if you research gun dog, gun dog is a hunting dog, so a dog that are so the hunter would go and he would shoot ducks or he would shoot wild game and the dog would be the thing to to, to fetch that. You know, so 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 still being aware of, of this of this dual meaning. So we have a street meaning, which for me I can associate it with, but also we have a proper meaning, you know, a dictionary meaning. Um mm-hmm. but again, not everybody within that space gets it. And I think a part of it is, is is the level of art education or even art appreciation we have in the Bahamas. So there's definitely a small community. And when I say small, I mean like really small, maybe 50 people who have a real appreciation for the arts, who are somewhat invested in, in, in art. But even those people are not as versed as a typical student mm. here in America. You know, um, so yeah, I think we just have a long way to go as a society, you know, um, and I think for a long time, too, I mean, the Bahamas have, has not been my audience. Um, I remember coming up as a, as a, as a budding artist or, or as a, as an aspiring artist, my goal was always to be internationally renowned as opposed to nationally renowned. So I don't want to be the hometown hero. I mean, the Bahamas is 11 by 17 miles, 350,000 people. Maybe 50 people out of that 350,000 get get art or have, have some sort of understanding or some sort of appreciation for art. 
so that for me has never been my 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 desire you know um I have given lectures there and actually very recent. I'm at the National Gallery and everybody was like, Oh, I didn't know art so complex. I didn't know you 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 are more I mean you 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 seem like 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 the smartness of the art makes the art, which which it does. You know, but I think for me giving a lecture there was good for them to see that art is not about art. You know, I mean, maybe you're interested in in economics. Maybe you're interested in politics. Maybe you're interested in agriculture. But how do we how how do we communicate these things in a very sophisticated, succinct, and confident way to a visual language? And that's where the research comes in. So getting them to understand that through lectures, I think, was a good jumping off point. Um, but in hindsight, they just have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Ah, so, so before we talk about um, your travels, because um, you um, you spent a lot of time, you know, in in the diaspora, and and more recently um, in Senegal, um, you know, developing, mm-hmm. um, you know, these. Uh, is it Red Boys? Um, Red Bone. Red Bone, yeah, the Red Bone series, and you have these boys, um, but they're not really sort of really the the figures are don't have like really distinctive um, facial expressions. Um, so, but they're like they're life size almost, you know these 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 figures and mm-hmm. and their composition. It's just really, you know, like really layered. I mean, you have, like, you had rosary beads and you have crosses and you have, you know, special fabric and I mean, it's really detailed. And then, you know, one, one of the um, the boys is in a tree, and there are two sort of standing next to each other uh, at the Museum of the African Diaspora, um, third mm-hmm. third floor gallery. Um, but you have you have more of them. <laughs> and um but um before you talk about that I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um just the um you know the artists you know cuz you mentioned that all of you all you know that are exhibiting in this exhibition that you all know each other um you know the mm-hmm. you know, um and uh, I guess you know it's a small world but you know you all are exhibiting and I don't know maybe Maybe uh, your colleagues have a similar experience insofar as, you know, showing at home versus showing outside of home, you know, insofar as the work and your audience and also who's getting it. Um, but I was wondering mm-hmm. if, if that also reflects the whole idea of colonialism. It's like, wow, you know, does colonialism mean that you have to leave home <laughs> to be able to do the work? Um or if you do the work at home, your audience is not your folks at home. So I'm wondering, like, okay, well, what is what is the art? What is the purpose of art? Mm-hmm. What is the meaning of the art? If 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 you know your people at home don't really get it, like, what 
yeah, I'm just wondering, sort of, what, what, what are you yeah, thinking so, so, around that? So, so I, I think that's a, that, that's a good um, question, actually. Um, so, yeah, so it takes leaving. Um, so, so there are a few, so, yeah, first of all, yes, we are all friends and colleagues, meaning mm-hmm. everybody in the show. Um, there is one person in the show who actually I don't know well, Philip Thomas, I think is his name, and he lives mm-hmm. in Jamaica, yeah. but yeah. I know of him. Um, mm-hmm. But for everybody else, yes, I mean, it, 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 for everybody else, but also people from the Bahamas that I know who are doing well, they had to leave. So, mm-hmm. so they all live in places like New York, and so you think about Janine and Tony, for one. She's from the Bahamas. She mm-hmm. lives in New York. You think about Tavares Strong. Mm-hmm. He's from the Bahamas. He lives in New York. Um, but again, you have to leave. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a must that you leave. But on the flip side of that, I think becoming established outside of there, it becomes easier to go back, which I'm in the process of doing, actually. So I have a studio mm-hmm. in the Bahamas. I have a studio practice in the Bahamas. I have people who work with me in the studio in the Bahamas. Um, and now I'm able to work from the Bahamas very confidently. I'm not showing in the Bahamas, but I'm working from there and pushing the work wherever it needs to go. Um, but also you think about people like Crystal Feely or Peter Doidge, who now live in Trinidad. Both of them migrated from the UK, you know, but now living in Trinidad and Trinidad is becoming their home. You think about Kehendi Wali, who's just seems to be look, relocating in in Senegal, in Dakar, um, where he just started this Black Rock Art Residency, but it also is a part of a studio that he has, but also a living space, et cetera, et cetera. So I think not, now I think it's, it's, it's a bit more easy once you establish yourself to, to, to be able to, to return, you know? So the notion of the return for me is becoming a thing. Um, I know another person, Ebony. So Ebony is between the United States and Jamaica. So she has gone back home in a sense too. She's in there full time, but she's still spending a, a substantial amount of her time working from home. Not not particularly showing at home, but 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 but, but really pushing the work where it needs to be, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that present. So I think becoming established outside and then going back inside, it. For one, you you serve as an inspiration for for other artists within the community, be it older artists, be it younger artists. But I think for me, once I go home, um, I usually work with the people with with, with with students from the University of the Bahamas. So the art they have a okay art program there, but usually those are the people who become my assistants in my studio. So I work alongside them, and they. Through working with me, they they are exposed to the ins and outs of both my production, but also mm-hmm. the business of things. So they are there when um coordinating shipping, and they have like a hand in on coordination and making sure paperwork is correct and making sure things are packed properly and 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 those type of things. So they're also watching me create. Actually, the first set of gun dogs was, 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 was I was assisted by students from from UB. The entire process. That mm-hmm. that the first set of gun dogs ended up 
first of all in London, which was first stop, and then it ended up at the Marquis Museum in Rome, among other places. But again, the students at UB were involved in the making of that. You know, and I think for for, for them to to kind of see see the process happen from my studio in the Bahamas, where they are helping cutting out the legs and cutting out the heads. I mean, just the silhouettes of them. I mean, the, the actual building is me, but, but the, the internal structure, I mean, they, they're helping put things together. But for them to have their hand in that and then also seeing the work travel and in a different space. I mean, the studio space is one thing, but to see it in a clean, sterile gallery and then from a gallery to go to a world-class institution you know, it it is it, 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 it serves as, as, as great inspiration for them, but also it it's a sense of pride to know that they have they were involved in the making of this thing. Um and for that reason I think it's important for me to be, be home. And again I am in the process of moving home probably by before the end of the summer I'll be back home. Mm-hmm. And the plan yeah. is so to continue working with with, with the university students. And again, it's my my way of giving back. I think just for many years I've been a part of academia in the United States and I'm giving back to American students, which I don't have a problem with doing. Obviously, mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm willingly being a part of it, but my people, they, they're not getting enough of me. So I think me going back home is, is a part of that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So who were your um who were your models like you know for instance you you know you came up and you said mentioned your training was in commercial art but even to think about mm-hmm. art as a career um, I mean like is your father an artist like did your grandmother no. do any kind of art um, <laughs> where no, did you no, see no. it um, to think no, about it of, as a career yeah none <laughs> of those my father no none of those people know anything about art. And none of those people. So my father's now deceased. Um, oh. He was my biggest cheerleader, my biggest supporter, mm-hmm. but he knew nothing about what I did. Um, my grandmother was an educator. Is yeah, was an educator. Um, so that's where my research interest kind of lies. I have another yeah. um, grandmother who was an entrepreneur. But but where mm-hmm. so people who I saw were local artists. Um, mm-hmm. So all the local artists who were working nationally. So within the Bahamas, so they were known in the Bahamas. Um, yeah, and we had a we had a summer workshop. Not we, they had a the, the older guys. They had a, a summer workshop that was uh, sponsored by Finco, which is a a bank. Mm-hmm. And we would be there, I think, three yeah, just three weeks working. And one week exhibition. Um, and the exhibition was usually at the Finco, at the Finco Bank. Um, and yeah, they served as as early inspiration, um, and kind of somewhat confirmed that art can be a career. But again, they're not working like internationally. They were working home, you know. But but working home, and I guess their target clientele would be like expats who were looking for work to decorate their homes. Um, the work mm-hmm. they were making was not necessarily challenging. Um, so there were a lot of like, yeah, colorful 
Bahamian, yeah, like island work, you know. Um, not not to dim it down, but it wasn't as challenging as the work that's being produced um, in contemporary art today. Um, so yeah, so 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 that was my early my early answer. and again they 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 served as men as early mentors and early encouragers. Um, but I remember one 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 of the um, one of my mentors at the time when I told him I was leaving to go to to school to undergraduate. He was like, oh no no no, I really don't want you to leave to go to undergraduate because the things you're doing now it's great. Again, what I was doing then was like very typical. You know, the the, the, the work is just so great, and I I just don't want them to spoil you. You know, I don't want them to spoil mm-hmm. what you what you're doing because it's so great. Um, and the work was crap you know it was not great you know i remember i remember um in one of my classes as an undergraduate um i was taking a i think it was like a colorful illustration class and at the time my 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 palette was just like color everywhere like every color i could, I could have 10 colors 10 tubes of paint and i and i would use every color from every tube of that paint so the more paints I have, so if I have 20 tubes, I'd use all 20 tubes. If I have 30 tubes, I'd use... So, so it was about color everywhere. So there was uncontrolled color, which is a very folk way of working, you know. Um, so, so yeah, and I remember he he, he used to say, yeah, why, why is color everywhere? Why is color everywhere? But in a critical sense, you know. Um, but again, mm-hmm. that's how I was taught in the Bahamas. There was no rhyme or reason. It's just about pretty colorful, very colorful things, you know. Um, not to say that the work doesn't have a, a, a great sense of color now, which it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very controlled. It's 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 very it's nearly like a a mathematical equation. That's how I think of color. So I think about it in very specific and strategic ways. Um, and though mm-hmm. I use it very limitedly, it seems as if it's 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 it's, it's very charged. It's it's more colors than it really is, you know. But 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 I'm mm-hmm. um yeah. But but again, I I, I think. The way I worked as a kid, I mean, obviously it it it, it has changed and it has evolved, um, and I think it, it evolved even more so after leaving the Bahamas, and being mm-hmm. exposed to different different cultures also, I think that kind of helped a lot. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, the whole idea of um, too much color. Um, you know, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And you just think about sort of geographically. You know, what's what's the weather like? You know, what's the terrain like? You know, what what's the the physical environment like in the Bahamas? Is it a bright, colorful place? It is a bright, probably story, so, bright, right? Very colorful. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so your art reflects where you live, right? And so if you're living in a place where there's winter. When there is no color, <laughs> it's like a it's like a reverse negative, right? Um, yeah, you, so, you have a black and white yeah. painting all the time, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, I see a lot. Can't... Which I see a lot though. <laughs> I see a lot of those mm-hmm. monochromatic black yeah. and white, all black, all white mm-hmm. paintings. Uh, right, you you, you, guess, you paint what I you guess. know, you paint what you live, and and so you actually you changed yourself to be able to, I guess, be able to speak. You know, in these these these, I guess, visual language, um, and and then you go to Africa, right? And is there's color again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so, so yeah, I, and I I, I agree. 
I agree with those things, but I I think as uh, at a certain point there's a notion of color being everywhere, but understanding each color mm-hmm. that's everywhere. So so that's that's the line that I draw, you know. So yeah, there's color everywhere, mm-hmm. but I understand the 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 the, the, the psychiatric or, or the psychology behind each of these colors being used in my work. You know, um, it's 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 for specific reasons. It, they they represent specific things. You know, um, mm-hmm. and again, I think that's the, that's a very academic way of approaching things. Which for me, I mean, I'm I can shamelessly say <laughs> that I am an academic as much as I'm an artist. Shamelessly. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. No, no, it's fine. You know, thinking about process um, because you're educated and like the person said. Um, when when uh, he was worried that uh, you know when you when you stepped out of your home into the diaspora that the Western uh, way of of um, defining and viewing art would change you in a way that might destroy some of your your innate gifts because that mm-hmm. happens a lot of times. Um, you no, know, I, once, I agree. You know, thereby. Yeah, yeah, and so you probably had to give up some things to be with who you are and where you are presently, and I don't know if you yeah, remember definitely. those things you you gave away or you gave up or were stolen or taken from you because it's all about, you know, um, uh, you know, being in the diaspora. It's all about what we've lost and, and how mm, we've been able yeah. to make things from what we have because there are some things mm. that we don't have access into anymore because – they were taken, and we don't remember what they were because we don't have language for it a lot of times. You know, that's, um, that, that's then, a good parallel. You, that's a beautiful parallel you're drawing, by the way. But, but keep on going. Um, but it's, no, it's no, no. So I want, you to, I want you to talk about your travels because, you know, you're, you know you're, you've traveled throughout, you know, the continent, you know, Africa, mm-hmm. and, and being able to, you know, have this discourse you know, with community, and and again, you know, we if we look at your um, um, John Blank again on oh, your gun dogs. I mean, you think about these these boys. They're also outside culture. You know, they're also the outsider, mm-hmm. like the gun dogs, like you know, those kind kind of dogs necessarily that you have, you know, curling up at the foot of your bed. I mean, you might have them. They might they might be a part of your household, but they're not inside. <laughs> Because they kind of run. Like, look at those teeth. You know, you look at those teeth of your dogs, like, whoa, those are sharp. And they're like a little, you know, they got little, you know, small, sturdy bodies, you know, like the face is real compact. And it's like, looks like if they grab you, they are not letting go. Even though they're decorated with these really nice baubles and things. Like, oh, they look so cute. Like, don't mess with it. (laughs) (laughs) Similarly, you know, you got these boys, and they're like, they're looking all fine in their regalia, right? But mm, don't think I want to mess with you either. So um, talk about your travels and and these these characters that you have uh, created, um, you know, in the series. Yeah, so... um... Yeah, so travel has been again very important in, in in me understanding human existence, but also me understanding my own existence within the world. For one, 
um, travel to, to to the African region, especially the Senegal. I mean, I'm I'm kind of that, that's my home. You know, if mm-hmm. I could own somewhere, that that that's mine. You know, um, but traveling there, so boys play a very peculiar role within that society, especially in the impoverished area, which most of the area is impoverished. So you would, I don't know, have you have you been to Senegal at all or no? Yeah, yeah, it was the first place I went to when I when I traveled to Africa. Yeah, I um. Oh, okay. I have um. Yeah, I have, like family there. Um. Yeah, Rufisk, um, is the place that uh-huh. you know I sort of hang out. But yeah, I've been to all those places, except maybe oh, okay. the village that you mentioned when you, you talked be- about where you've been. I I know St. Louis. I I know a lot of those areas. Okay, so so you may be very familiar with the role of the of the young boys there. So you have the Talibis, and then mm-hmm. and then they are they are guided by this guy called a Marabou. So the Talibis yeah. are these kids who are put out the bag. Yeah, they're exploited. I think. Yeah, yeah the parents yeah, think that they're sending them to school. It's sort of like yeah. now, you know, with the immigrants being trafficked it's almost like that uh-huh. only in, 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 the, in the in the community and then these kids like they don't have shoes they're hungry yeah. and and the department of child welfare is not happy about it um but but the parents you know keep on sending these kids you know to these these uh, religious teachers you know sort of mm-hmm. like interning um and and they keep them for i don't know a number of years and teach them quran i think um yeah they teach yeah, yeah. you got it Mm-hmm. But they're really yeah, not teaching yeah, so them around. They just like, they just got the kids out there begging, and then they feed them, yeah. you know, like every now and then. And these, yeah, yeah, you you see them when you're like traveling, like they come to your window with the bowl, yeah. and yeah. you know, asking for things. Yeah, they try to clean your windows, and mm-hmm. and they're little, yeah, like so, really so, little, sweet little no, boys. No, the kids. No, yeah, they're, they're kids. So so that was my early introduction and interest. In the boys mm-hmm. there in in Senegal, um, these these Talibis, you know, um, mm-hmm. and as I continued, I began to venture out, um, and I spent maybe like a month, a month and a few days, um, in this in this village, um, called Cynthian. Um, so mm-hmm. I was in the Cynthian village as a part of this residency called Thread. So Thread is associated with the Joseph Joseph and Annie Albus Foundation, um, and they have subsidiaries all in a few countries. But the one in the Cynthian village is one of them, and it was the one that I chose to go to. Um, and there, there are Talibis, but there's still this dynamic between young boys who are eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, who are considered men. And their role, so, so they're always outside. So you would never mm-hmm. see little girls, you just see little boys outside. The reason being that the little girls are taught to be in the house, so doing house chores. And the little guys, they have to fetch water and care for the goats and the cows and and hunt. That's their role within, within society. Um, but also within that space, they, they 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 find time to play, 
uh, but their play would be soccer. So when they're not doing like yard work, when I say yard work, I mean like hunting and, and fetching and doing those type of stuff, they're constantly playing the sport, soccer. And again, if you think about the space within Senegal, wrestling and soccer, those are the two ways out. Those are the mm-hmm. two ways, okay. especially for the impoverished, mm-hmm. to economics, so to money, to education, mm-hmm. and to exodus, to get out of that impoverished place. And when I'm saying exodus, I mean exodus as in get to Europe, get mm-hmm. to the United States, and more so to Europe than the United States, you know. Um, so just observing these kids, you know, um, and I mentioned the exchange program. So the exchange program that I, I, I've been doing is, is any time I go there, um, I would I would exchange soccer balls. So there's, so a lot of the kids can't afford good balls. So the balls they usually have are usually like busted, and they would like mm-hmm. tie it up on string and just kick kick it, you know, um, as as right. practice. I mean, they're not doing that. Mm-hmm. They're making their own balls. So they make mm-hmm. makeshift balls and they become the thing. So what I began doing was making this exchange program where I would take makeshift balls, but also busted old balls. And in exchange for those, I would give them brand new balls. So there's this constant exchange. There's this kind of ball exchange that I've been doing. And with that, I'm thinking about the notion of journey, but the notion of stardom. You know, so again, mm-hmm. when you think about stardom, you, 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 you think about, for me, with them, this is this way out. To facilitate this way out is to, to facilitate a, con- a consistent, a consistency, a consistent practice. For, you know, in, a, in order for that to happen, I mean, the, the broken ball wouldn't be that thing. So for me, bringing in these new balls, I kind of feel as if, and even if I'm giving it to only 10, 10 people at a time, they still play with a group, so they're playing with a group of 20. And if each one has, and each of those 10 people have a new ball, that's that, that, that's a whole bunch of people who are still um, who are still benefiting from the one ball that they. I mean, you can't play by yourself, you know. I mean, you can, but I mean, they're not playing by themselves. Um, so, so yeah, so 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 um, they are facilitating this notion of stardom, but also this notion of journey, this notion of heroism. To be a star is to be a hero. The journey is to get out of this place. Maybe soccer would be maybe if if only one or two people from that community, who 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 is able to to afford an education through soccer, through their talents in soccer. You know, I I, I mean one person, two people. I I mean for me it's a lot. You know, and 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 I, and I find that my duty anytime I go there, it's not just going the swing in my hands. It's just not just going begging for photos, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an exchange, and I, I find it, like, very, very important. Um, I think the second part of the exchange, too, is, 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 is in making this work. Again, I'm not painting portraits of them, but for me, it feels a, as if I'm giving them a voice. You know, a lot of the materials, so I, I when we met in, in, the, in the museum, I was showing you um, some of the fabrics, you know. Um, these things I'm gathering from Senegal, from the villages and, and, and incorporating. So now we're speaking about a history, a history of a specific place. Um, so all of these things kind of work in tandem in, 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 um, in, in telling a very, a very um, rich um, story, you know, um, and a very current. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's very current. And again, 
we can think about these things in regard to today, this notion of journey, stardom, rite of passage today, or we can go back as far as Joseph Campbell. We could go past as, as far as the Greeks and the Romans. We could go to Christianity. I mean, I think Jesus, the story of Jesus is the same story I'm telling, just through a different lens. The notion of stardom, the notion of the martyr, the notion of rite of passage, the notion of healing, the notion of journey. You know, like these are the same stories I'm telling, but again, my own version of them. And again, using these boys as the... And not only boys, these kids as 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 the jumping off point for that. Hmm. Right. Yeah. What a beautiful story. I remember the little boys, not little boys, but because some of them are, they're not like tiny. But mm-hmm. it's amazing watching them play football. Right. They're running around in these yeah. jellies, these plastic shoes. I'm like, yeah, whoa. Yeah. Not none of them have like the right shoe. Like. Shoes, shoes, you yeah. know, or athlete shoes, and they are kicking that ball, and and you know, and like you mentioned, you know, sometimes the ball is wrapped in in rags because it's kind of unraveling, and they yeah. are out there having a good time and playing. And they enjoy really it. Good. Yeah, yeah, it is heck of sweet. Um, you know, watching them just. You know, just enjoy life, and and you think, wow, yeah. how can they enjoy life? They're poor. They don't have enough of this. Or they I don't know. have enough of that. But yeah. Speaking about speaking <laughs> about speaking about life lessons. Yeah, those those mm-hmm. kids, they are the happiest people I've ever met in my life. Not only the kids, but mm-hmm. the adults. They're just happy and carefree, and they're healthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, they 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 are they are they are like cut. You know, like they're eating well. You know, um, but again, mm-hmm. they eat well through sharing. You know, um, so if a village have have uh, a few goats that were that were um, that were slaughtered, I mean it's gonna share throughout the village. So everybody's gonna mm-hmm. have some meat. When they fish, they fish in abundance. Everybody, you know, and and and, and nobody has money to 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 buy things really, you know. So it's just about a matter of sharing. Um, and 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 on that eating. No, I think one 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 thing before we end, I want to kind of speak about mm-hmm. too is my my first my first lunch in Senegal. So the first time, very first time I went there, I went there for the mm-hmm. Um But I was there three weeks in advance to make a site specific work, and hello, are you still here? Are you still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, oh, I had a beep on the phone. I thought you you hung up. Um, I was making a site specific work and 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 I had like a bunch of assistants from, from, from Dakar. And a part of this setup that they had for me was they had this 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 lady who would who would um who would cook lunch for, for me and people who was working who was working with me. And the first day she prepared this platter and it was like a big silver bronze platter that she brought out. Mm-hmm. That had food in the middle, and just something covering, co- covering the food. So she unveiled it, and my interpreter was like, "Oh, come on, let's eat lunch." I said, oh, "Cool." So oh, it was probably was maybe like ten of us, and all ten of, so I was the only non-Senegalese there. So the all ten of us gathered around this platter, and then everybody started to use their hands and eat from this one platter. 
And I, I mean, to me, it was like, what's 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 going on? <laughs> and I asked my interpreter, I said, is this usual? Is this this how we eat? And, and one thing he said, and he said it very proudly, he said, one thing we do in Senegal is we eat together. And he said it like chest up, head up, very proud. And I left that lunch and I thought, okay, in America, in the Bahamas, I mean, I'm eating in my room. Cousin is eating in the front room. This one is this way. We don't eat together, you know, and, and speaking about life lessons. So I go to a place that's, that, that's quote unquote impoverished and everybody's sharing. Everybody's eating together as one from the same platform. You know, um, and another thing with with this eating method is anybody can walk in and eat. Mm-hmm. So anybody, so you could be right. just a stranger on the side of the road, and you see a people, a group of people eating. You can walk, you can intervene. You don't have to say a word. You don't have to ask a question. You can just eat. And once you eat, and once you're done, and you had enough, you just leave. Mm-hmm. The notion of sharing, the notion of communion, the notion of brother and sisterhood. The notion of family, when family isn't really family, but they are family, you know, like all mm-hmm. of these things. I mean, it's 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 mind blowing, you know. It's it's, it's mind blowing. The the small but very potent lessons that that I learned mm-hmm. in that space alone, but also in traveling, you know, mm-hmm. in traveling. I mean, I'm I'm constantly being taught lessons that I'm definitely not learning in America. Definitely not learning in the Bahamas. <laughs> you know? Oh, really? Oh, well. Hmm, that's yeah, interesting so. though that you wouldn't you wouldn't see those lessons reflected in uh, you know, in your, your home country, you know, Bahamas. Oh, no, definitely not. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually my, my next guest is in the studio. However, um okay. I was just thinking how, you know, your travels um to um to Senegal uh sort of um sort of bring you almost like full circle um because um that that home that you you talk about when you were a kid you know where you had friends who you know might have been a part of a gang but they were still your friends and oh, yeah. Yeah. and and you and you know and you you live in one neighborhood but you hang out in your grandmother's and so the dynamics of the community are different but you have friends in both and um, yeah, yeah, just interesting, and just sort of the whole thing about you know being uh, a, a diaspora person and and the effects of colonialism, you know, on one's person, on one's psyche, and on one's you know ability to be a part of community because of that colonial division. I mean, colonialism doesn't bring people together; it separates people based on stuff, right? You know, the no, economics. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and so now, you know, that you are, you know, successful and um, have literally sort of like paid dues, you know, you can go back home and you, you have resources that you can offer because you had to leave to come back, right? So that's yeah, definitely. But maybe, definitely. Yeah, but maybe we can have another conversation, you know, because um, the zip is going to be up through August 11th, and mm-hmm. maybe we can talk again. Maybe we can get Anthony in the studio or some other folks that you know, since you know everybody. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she's traveling, and you know, um, and I think taking down or setting up some an exhibit. So we weren't able to get yeah. her in on today. Ebony G. Patterson, you know, your good friend. But I'm looking forward to talking to her about her work, which is really awesome. 
Um, yeah, but I was wondering, do you have a website or something that people can can visit to check out your work? Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, why don't you give it to our audience? Yeah, so it's my first name, L A V A R hyphen, so which is a dash. My last name, M U N R O E dot com. So Lavar hyphen Monroe dot com. www in the front, obviously. <laughs> Cool, cool. Well, it's always, it's always, it was really wonderful meeting you, uh, Lavar, and um, and and uh, you know, um, you know, I think you said you're moving back. You're not back yet, but you're moving back. So good luck on that. And yeah, yeah thank look you, forward thank to you, you. to visiting you in your home studio, looking out the window, and I would like... love to have you. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah, love to have you fun. over. And you can introduce me to your yeah. country people because there's so you know it's a small country, so maybe I can meet everybody. No, I'm just kidding, but <laughs> but you 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 would you would meet a vast a vast amount of people though. Yeah, it's, cool, cool. It's, it's very tiny, you know. It's very very tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, it was a joy um, speaking with you. I wonder it was, it was a true joy, and um, I'm glad we were able to do it. And yeah, let's do it again. Okay, cool, super. All righty, you take good care and have a good rest of the day. <laughs> okay, you too. Yeah, talk to you soon. Okay, bye bye. All right, bye bye. Ah, good morning, uh, Katara. Um, how are you, Crosley? How are you? I'm doing very well, Wanda. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, and I think this might be. Um, the director, um, Justin Gibbons. Good morning. How are you? Maybe not. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah, so um, are you alone? Are you with Holly or Ray? Um, representing yeah, well, it's just me this morning, Monday. Oh, no, you are fine. Thank you for joining us. I know, you know, like... Crunch time, you know, your festival is kicking off for its 21st uh, anniversary season next week, so I'm sure you are very, very busy, so really appreciate your fitting us into your schedule to tell us, you know, sort of all of the various um, developments for this particular season. I mean, you know, there's you have all those fabulous films, and I don't know how many countries and how many selections, you've got all these venues, Plus, you have this new um, business uh, collaboration that I was reading about. You could tell us about, and then you're doing a a really wonderful, you know, tribute media event uh, next week on the 12th, um, sort of honoring a uh, really wonderful man, uh, Jeff Adachi, um, yes. the uh, San Francisco uh, district attorney who who passed, who died so suddenly. Like, wow! It's like it was amazing, and he was also yep. a filmmaker and a good friend of the festival. So, tell us about the festival this year. You can just talk. <laughs> well, this year, it, yeah, it, it's going to be fairly, fairly exciting. This year, we have got um, a selection of films from across the United States and uh, from abroad. We do our best to try to represent films from a complete diasporic view of of African descent. So um, there are quite a few films every year. There's something new, something um, we learn um, as a collaborative group here 
at the San Francisco Black Film Festival, and it's our pleasure to be able to bring that to our immediate community in Fillmore, as well as San Francisco at large. So um, we, we take a lot of pride in that. And this year we have a lot of local film. We're actually leading with and featuring quite a bit of local film as well. So um, that's going to be exciting. But you're right. We're kicking off on the 12th for an early media event, and we're going to be screening one of the shorts that will be featured in the festival, as well as another short by a young man from the Silicon Valley. We're going to be talking about prison reform and Jeff Adashi's role in our um, immediate community and the effects that he had. And unfortunately, you know, some other immediate information, you know, with Kevin Epps being um, rearrested after the passing of Jeff Adashi, you know, personally kind of affects the festival that affects me and my family. And so um, we're looking forward to being part of that um, press conference on the 12th as well as the panel with IGS, um, our new business collaboration, trying to bring media to business and business into media and so that people within our community can be directly affected by that collaboration with the festival. So we're going to be exploring that, um, I believe, later this evening. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's going to be later today and tomorrow. So, yeah, there's a lot going on outside of the opportunity to have time on the air to talk about the San Francisco Black Film Festival. And that will be held this year, June 13th through 16th. And I could just ramble and ramble and ramble. Or you can ask me some questions. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about, um, like, how many how many films did you have to um Screen, you know, to be able to get to the number that you have now, and um, and maybe I noticed that there are a lot of um, you know, short features as well as documentary films, short films. I mean, there there's so many, and I think I counted four venues. Um, I think yes. Um, and well, yeah, and then, and then you have this. Yeah, why don't you tell us sort of where the festival is happening and how people can get tickets and your website, which is so awesome because people can actually uh, watch a trailer for all of the films, I think, that they might be interested in. And then some of the films are actually on your website. Like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, so tell tell our uh, audience about, you know, some of those details to make sure that they um, – you know, get their tickets and that they see all the films that they want to see because you can't see them all because, unfortunately, I noticed that you have film screening at different venues at the same time. Like, there's overlap, so people are going to have to make some hard choices. Some oh, hard man, choices. Really? Well, it's, um, it's a pleasure to be able to bring this type of a festival to the city, but it is um, restricted by time. We are definitely looking into maybe extending it over a two-weekend period as the content mm-hmm. just continues to grow and grow and grow. I find myself having this conversation a lot. My husband and I kind of diverge a little bit on as to why, but I believe that we're all innately storytellers. Everyone wants to tell their perspective on this thing we all call life, and technology is allowing for people to find their inner filmmaker and we get quality film from quality filmmakers but 
I think that part of the world is just growing so much. There are phones, uh, iPhone films. There's, um, I, I don't know how to explain the new media genre of films where people are taking on different concepts to looking at and shooting film. So it's, there's just so much more content these days than there was before. There's also a different take on how we are um, absorbing our media. When we started this, unfortunately, after Ave passed away in 2009, Ave Montague, um, my mother-in-law, founded this festival 21 years ago. And I think at that point, there was more of a focus on educational content narrative that was based around um, historic documents or there was more documentary now there seems to be more of a feature, more thriller, more action, more uh, mainstream media film that is um, very exciting to watch and has been very exciting to watch to grow, um, having that pleasure over the last 10 years. So, um, yeah, we get a lot more shorts, a lot more concepts that might grow into um, more feature films. We're getting films that are casted by African-Americans that we would normally see only casted by um, white Americans, you know, just the basis of what media is, looks like in our country. There's um, more of a mixed family feel. Um, a lot of the films I'm being approached with the question is how does this fit into a black film festival? Because it's showing the diversity and the change in our black American family. Yes, there's a white father and a black mother and biracial children, and I'm glad to be able to show that on the screen. A black film doesn't have to be just by a black person or just casted by a 100% African-American cast. I am loving the change and the representation of what our families are really looking like in America. And so it's that's where it's coming from. <laughs> it's just coming from mm -hmm. everywhere. And so this year we have about 80 films, 78 to 80 films. Oh, wow. We started probably with close to 200 films. There is oh. um, a panel selection. So we break down the film based on visual aesthetics, of course, you know, because it has to be um, appealing. It has to be something that makes sense. It has to be... Um, there has to be a film, truly, and then the content is also very relevant. So we might pick a film that might need a little more work, but the storyline or the message is relevant and necessary. And some of the films are just too pretty not to show. I don't know if that's fair, but a lot of um, there's a lot of really good film out there in the and seeing it from so many different perspectives has been is amazing. And I would encourage anyone mm -hmm. to come check it out. At the very least, check out the mm -hmm. website and see what we have to offer. The shorts mm -hmm. um, are pretty much do our best to program them together so that there's some sense of continuity and a thread of, of similarity and familiarity when you're watching the film. So it might be something where it's young men struggling through life young women struggling through life, relationships, um, history, you know, and there's a lot of theatrical um, 
tidbits in there too that I really enjoyed myself. Um, I could probably start dropping titles or people yeah, can just yeah, go check like it out. At, yeah. No, yeah, I'd like for you to um, maybe, because I, I know one film um, is featuring um, a friend of mine, uh, Charles Blackwell, and um, that film is going to be screening at the uh, African American Art and Culture Complex. And um, and then I I think that's on a, I don't remember. I know it's at 2.30, but I don't remember what day. I don't know if it's a Saturday afternoon or not. Uh, yeah, and I'd have um, to go through. I'm okay. say Sunday, yeah, but, but once you, again, mm-hmm. check out the website, www.sfbff.org. Yeah, but it's it's too much. I mean, you you sorted through two hundred films and you got down to seventy eight to eighty, and it's like, whoa! But that took a little bit of time, um, and that I'm being uh, sort of facetious there. Like, it took a lot of time because I'm sure all the films, if you could have shown them, you probably would have. Because, you know, for some someone to submit the work to a festival means that it's at a certain level uh, of of artistry and. Wow, you know, if you had more days, you could show more films. But yeah, tell, give us some names. I mean, I know there's a Teddy Pendergrass something. Um, yes. And and there are these great shorts from, you know, from the African diaspora. And you've got some women directors. You've got some first-time directors. And we actually have a director um, on the line. And and we gonna, you know, you can maybe we could talk to him too. Um, and you could talk about more about the. Um, the media event and the tribute to Jeff um, Adachi, and also I wondered. I know in the past you've had a children's programming. I think it was used to be on Saturday morning, and I don't know if you have that happening this particular twenty-first um, um, season of the festival. But anyway, so those are some questions. <laughs> well, to start with the last one um, Friday at the African American Arts Coach Complex at, at noon. That that block is specifically directed toward a younger crowd, and that one of my favorite films on that one is I Will Not Forget You, and it it speaks about the tragedy in Puerto Rico and a young lady's willingness to give up her Christmas to help out her family because it it means something to her to be able to give back, and it's a very touching film. Good Kid is a local film from Oakland that's also screening in that block, and it shows a young man's struggle between just growing up in the community and himself. I guess that might be the best way to put it without giving it away, you know, but Mm -hmm. that's one of the shorts that's going to be showing in that block. I'm trying to, I wish I was more prepared for that question specifically, but you're right, there is always a block that's geared towards a younger crowd, either because the content is more approachable for children or the storyline is just um, a message that they need to hear, but we do our best to make sure that the content is tempered for children of that age, and we try to screen it, and we'll invite a group of kids from the community to come out and reach out to a couple of schools to try to fill those seats so that that audience is there for that portion of the film. It is Juneteenth weekend, and hoping most of the kids are out of school and available to come to a film festival on a Friday afternoon. But definitely mm-hmm. that Saturday is directed 
all the content on Saturday is directed towards the Juneteenth crowd. Mm. And with that being said, it brings us back to location, location, location. We are yeah, and, also, at and also give your website. I don't know if you gave it already, but because I don't remember, oh, but I did. give it again. <laughs> okay. Um, we um, we use two major theaters in the Fillmore District in order to um, keep it within the community, and mm-hmm. we use the Juneteenth weekend because it is an is what my mother-in-law started with, and an opportunity to have an educational component to that weekend with film media as the conduit. So at the African-American Arts and Culture Complex in the Burial Clay Theater, the seats about 150, is definitely our main theater. And then there's another converted space on the second floor, the Nia Room, that we also use for screening, and that is 762 Fulton Avenue at the African-American Arts and Culture Complex. Now, in Fillmore, on Fillmore, we are at 1330 Fillmore Street, and it is the old Yoshi's. And there is one small theater that we use that's very quaint and intimate, and we'll also be converting a larger space to use for some of our larger features. Now, that is going to be Teddy Pendergrass, a really nice documentary that um, gave me some personal insight to an icon of my mother's day and age. So I grew up listening to this man and loving this man's voice. And I had no idea some of the professional struggles and, of course, you know, um, his personal struggles. So it, it, it's a very eye-opening documentary. And so if you know of Teddy Pendergrass and really doesn't, I would encourage you to um, seek out that documentary, and that will be Saturday um, at 6 p.m. And that will be at the Fillmore Grand Theater on Fillmore and then we're opening up with Guitar Men and closing out um, our award ceremony with The Robeson Effect. We've chosen both of these films because they highlight and showcase San Francisco legends, and we appreciate the opportunity to be able to do that with the platform that we have to showcase the films that you might only see at a festival, that especially when we can do with such a personal touch with you know, a film about Buzzy Martin by Rocky Capella, Negret Tarman, and The Robinson Effect about Danny Glover and Mr. Ben Guillory by Judy Smith. And so and it might not be what you would expect for an opening or an awards film, but we appreciate the opportunity to be able to highlight some of our own personal hometown heroes as well as some of the up-and-coming directors that we're showcasing. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Well, um, I think um, I think the director, um, Justin um, Givens, is in the studio. Let me, um, let me see. Um, this is his I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh, awesome. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, I've got... Yeah, um, are you joined by someone else that has the same uh, area code? Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, I'm going to do this. My name's Jeremy. That's the start of the show. Hi, Jeremy. Are you are you the actor? Yes. Yes, ma'am. I play Sid. Oh, awesome. You are good. Okay. Yeah. 
Great. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so Katara, why don't you why don't you introduce um uh our um our our our, our guests, uh Justin and Jeremy, um who um they're you know, uh Justin's film, Jeremy is um one of the uh the actors in in the film, like the and I guess the antagonist. Um, a protagonist. <laughs> I'm yeah, a little I play, bit of <laughs> Yeah, uh, I I play Sid. Uh, Sid is the a lead role of the film. Uh, he's a you know a suburb kid. Uh, grew up in uh, in the suburbs and you know fell into some bad decisions, but it was for a good reason. And I, I don't, without giving too much away, um, it was uh, the cause was righteous, but it kind of led to a series of events that put him in a, in a bad spot. Uh, but I'll let, I'll let my brother, you know, talk about that. But uh, yeah, I played the lead role there and it was really awesome. Uh, it's a really powerful message and I hope everybody uh, really enjoys it um, when they do see it and see the impact of what he's actually trying to do. Yeah. So disparity of two pushes, we make sure that we let everybody know exactly what short we're talking about opportunity yes. to be screened twice at the festival this year for two very yeah. good oh, okay. Yeah. So when is the screening? When is the disparity um, screening? I know it's going to screen uh, at the um, I, the media um, event. Hmm. Saturday at two. Saturday at two. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So um. Uh, Katara, do you want to talk at all about about um Justin's film being a part of the um uh the media um uh well, called, the um, media event and 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 the uh, tribute to Jeff. Um, how you happen to to know Justin's uh, work, and because it fits perfectly thematically into this particular program that you have on Thursday. Um, it does. June and 12th. It um, also fits. It fits right in line with um, what Jeff Adashi was known for within our community, and you know, fighting for awareness and the rights of. A community that's left at the mercy of a political system that's not really in our favor, and so it is an awesome short film that gives a very real insight into what happens to these young men and why the difference in the disparity between the two pushes is there. Because a lot of people don't know and understand what and how that law and how the laws read and why we get caught behind those type of things, you know, with you know, with the, the with yeah. the regulation or legalization of marijuana, that's also brought up another eye-opening aspect in the South. You know, where one joint, you know, is Lance's brother in jail for a quarter of his life, and so there's another mm-hmm. short film also that speaks specifically mm-hmm. about SB, uh, what was it 1348, the um, Senate bill, and how yeah. that affects the laws as well. So. And these are some of the things that Adashi was known for within the community. So it was really great to find the short film to be able to give it the opportunity to screen because it speaks to our cause specifically. And, I mean, there's not I could talk about it forever and ever, as well as the block it's playing in on the on Saturday at the Barrow Clay Theater. You know, it's one of the blocks that I like to showcase because, Every last one of those films is going to talk about 
what young men in our community go through from different um, um, perspectives, from the viewpoints mm-hmm. of different directors, and we get to see awesome young actors showcase their skills. Did a great job in that film there. And so I'm going to turn it over. I think I've talked myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, so Justin, I'm trying to get now to my um, screen. So you, um, you were born and raised in Las Vegas, and I presume um, um, were you also born and raised in Las Vegas, Jeremy? Yes. Yep. Yeah. I was. Okay. Since your siblings. <laughs> and, yes. and Justin, yeah. you um, uh, you developed um, your passion for film writing and your first script like when you were five, which is amazing. Um, and yeah. then and then and then you write in your bio that you moved to Phoenix for secondary school and college, where you earned a degree in criminal justice from Arizona State University. And and so I was wondering, um, you know. As uh, are you in law enforcement? Um, what do you do with the criminal justice uh, degree besides make these great films, which challenge those those laws, <laughs> particularly uh, yeah, around? No, um, uh, yeah. Originally, mm-hmm. yeah. Originally, my um, I, I wanted to be a filmmaker, but then um, kind of fell out of it for a little while, and then I did the criminal justice thing because that was another thing I always loved, and so I was gonna go try and go to law school. But mm-hmm. once I once I had finished and uh, I, I kind of just wasn't really feeling like that was the place for me, and then I just up and moved to L.A. and decided I was going to give the filmmaking thing a shot and see where it went. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So, so um, Jeremy, um, what about you? Are you the younger brother or the older brother? I, I am the sixth of seven, and, you know, um, first, I, you know, I want to say thank you guys so much for, you know, taking the time to, you know, ask myself and my, and my brother questions about his film, and, like, you know, it, it speaks to, you know, a San Francisco Black Film Festival for allowing people to have a platform to talk about diverse cultures and, uh, or diverse, diverse situations within our own community that, it's a, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily just be a black story or a black character. And I think that that's beautiful. It speaks to the progress that we're making as a community. And I wanted to say thank you uh, for, you know, for having us on and not only that, like expressing and exposing um, the San Francisco Black Film Festival. You know, there's a lot of great screenings that are going to be there. Um, I think like Danny Glover has a film um, that's also going to be in there. So I think it's, it's really cool mm-hmm. that you guys are, um, really doing this. It's our first time being a part of it, and we're just super excited, you know, hearing that we were going to be on this radio show. We were super excited about it, so I just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, it's It's been really a, a treat. Yeah, uh, but, you know, with, with Justin's film, with, with Disparity, um, you know, I, we, we grew up um, in the Southwest, Vegas, Arizona. Now Justin's in L.A. I'm, I'm based in Arizona currently, uh, and it, it kind of does kind of shape um, – what what the atmosphere is like in the film, um, and even down to the the type of characters that are in the film, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, growth and 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 change in the characters. There's a lot of uh, impact uh, that uh, that happens inside the interrogation room. Um, it's I'm sorry. Uh, it's something that's uh, really exciting, and I'm hoping that everybody will be able to get out there. But we've grown up our whole life you know, making films, making movies. When we were little kids, we'd get all the kids in the neighborhood together and we'd create a story and tell them what to do. 
Um, even if we didn't have a camera, we'd make plays, we'd do things like that. So the arts is something that's always been a part of uh, of us um, from the very beginning. And we just now have just now manifested a lot of that stuff on our own uh, as we've gotten out of college to kind of see what we can do in this industry and make an impact on, on stories that we actually care about that relate to us and who we are. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. And in your film, um, you know, Disparity, uh, Tale of Two Pushes, um, and and the tagline um, is well, you know what it is because you wrote. Same story, what's, what's your... Yeah, Same story, exactly, exactly. Right. So tell our audience what the film's about for those um, you know wondering, like, okay, what are they talking about? What's happening in the film? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, the film is about it's about two two recently arrested drug dealers. One of them is white, one is black. Both of them uh, live in the Phoenix suburb area. And one of them is caught, the white guy is caught with powder cocaine, and the black guy is caught with crack cocaine. And so what it is is you're kind of simultaneously seeing both of them go through the justice system, and you see how different they treat it, but you'll also suddenly see how similar their lives are. And, you know, like, once you ignore the, the color, you're like, these two kids are kind of in relatively the same boat, but their outcomes are so much different because of, you know, which each one of them was caught with. And the whole uh, point of it was to educate people about crack cocaine sentencing disparity, something I learned about in college that kind of blew my mind about how lopsided these sentences are. And it, it, it's created such a large gap in prison sentencing, and it's specifically targeting black males because it's, it's just simple science if you come down harsher on a narcotic that's found more likely in African-American populated areas, well, yeah, you're going to blow up the incarcerated black males. And so that's why all this is happening. It's, it's all about race and it's about class because, you know, powder cocaine, cocaine in its powder form is, is, a, is an upper class drug. Like it was the Wall Street drug. That was its nickname. And, you know, even though the two forms are the exact same thing, you're talking about the difference between water and ice. Like that's, you know, that's water just in its liquid form versus its solid form. And that's what you're dealing with here, but you're seeing a drastic difference in the way it's treated. Um, It used to be worse, but Obama has since made it better with the Fair Sensing Act of 2010, but it's, it's still very, very lopsided. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about the um, 2018 uh, First Step Act? Does that take into consideration any uh, – does it, like, take the, um, the Fair Sentencing Act a little further? I know it only has the, fair, yeah. The, uh, yeah, the First Step only has to do with federal, um, federal prisons, and most of the prisons are state prisons. So it's like, okay, well, like, does it affect the majority of the people that are being held? And I know some people are still in prison who um who got those those harsh sentences right everyone didn't get um released no uh so what fair sentencing act did was it took out the ratio cuz the ratio used to be for 1 gram of co- mm-hmm. powder cocaine you get one mm-hmm. 100 times that amount with crack so it was a drastic difference or excuse me reverse that for every 1 gram of crack is the equivalent of getting caught with 100 grams of powder cocaine mm-hmm. which is incredibly insane that dropped that to mm-hmm. 118, but the problem was it didn't actually retroactively apply. So it was only for anyone mm-hmm. post that point. Uh, oh, 
what First Step did was it finally applied that retroactively. So now people will hopefully start getting that credit for the time they've already served and mm-hmm. be released under the 1 to 18 ratio instead of the 1 to 100 so that they've already served their fair share of time and can finally be released. And so uh, that yeah. was, the goal of this film was just to bring more awareness to that. You know, that's what I, I wanted to highlight exactly that this is going on because most people just really don't know this. They don't know that this. I didn't know it until, you know, I, I took classes that showed this to me. I'd never heard of such a thing. And it's, uh, you know, like there's so many things talk, talking about the war on drugs. You have like the wire, which is to me the standard for anything on the war on drugs in terms of a piece of art. Um, but mm-hmm. I saw a pocket here with disparity that was kind of ignored. And so that was why I focused my attention in this little small sector. Because uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. our prison system and justice system is so broken, you can make movies for decades about one specific thing that we're messing up at. And so with disparity, I decided to focus my attention there because I, I, mm-hmm. just, I will never forget the day I learned about that. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And and um I was just thinking, you know, when I I'm like, well, I mean, haven't we fixed this? I thought to myself with the crack and the powder the powder cocaine, you know, the sentencing, you know, the person with the powder gets less time than the person with the crack and in thinking about that whole war on black people, they call it war on drugs, really war on black people. Um and uh, you know, that um Elizabeth um not Elizabeth, um Let's see, um, the new Jim Crow um, author, John Oh, Wayne. the new Jim Crow, great. I, I was a, yeah, I Michelle was Alexander. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mhm. And that then, and then also, um, sorry, go ahead. What was I interrupted. I interrupted you. Go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just talking about the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander's book. Like, is a revelation. Like, I, I recommend everybody read through that because that she really breaks down exactly what this prison system really is and uh to simplify it it's it was a replacement of slavery that that's what it is it 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 was meant to replace slavery so that was definitely a huge influence um she goes much more broader uh than just what i did which was more specific with disparity um but some other influences was uh orange is the new black uh the novel version, mm-hmm. not too much the show. Um, that was a huge influence because that's where I, it's heavily about, you know, how private prisons play a factor into this. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, Piper, Piper Kerman's memoir, Orange is New Black, is another recommended read on it if you're interested in the justice system. Because um, mm-hmm. she has kind of a unique perspective in it of itself because it, it involves with the women and how private prisons come into play. Uh, a, a Time to Kill by John Gershom. Uh, was mm-hmm. another novel that I read when I was trying to, like, that helped me a lot with, with balancing uh, exactly how to tell a story that both didn't make excuses for what the person did, but at the same time uh, made made it, made it so that you see that this is really being wrong. Um, so, you know, what? Like, the whole goal of the film is just to get people to understand this. And to see that, yes, somebody can make a mistake, but that doesn't mean that we have to destroy lives because of it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's yeah. really what I wanted to show. 
<laughs> right, and then to have it, you know, as a part of the um, uh, the special um, tribute to Jeff Adachi, um, and and sort of also looking at, um, let's see, where is that Senate bill? Um, <laughs> Oh, here, Senate, uh, Nancy, uh, State Senator Nancy Skinner's uh, SB Senate Bill 1437, uh, which made it possible for uh, Nico Wilson to be released after spending 10 years in jail for a murder he didn't commit. I'm thinking 10 years in a jail, like, wow, horrible. I think I read that he ate beans yeah. and ramen, right, like for 10 years. And then, um, and then I also read that, you know, he's out, but I hear that his – release is being contested as of last month. They want to put him back in, um, into prison, or not prison, because he hasn't made it to prison. He was just in jail all this time. Um, and so I'm sure, since this is also your field, that, that you're aware of that particular um, Senate bill that um, Brown signed mm-hmm. um, before yeah, he left office. Yeah, um, so yeah, the SB 1437 was meant to target uh, that felony murder clause, mm-hmm. which is a complicated thing because it, for anyone listening who doesn't know what felony murder is, it's you can be charged with first-degree murder even if you didn't actually commit a murder, but you were committing a different crime and a, and a murder occurred. But um, it makes no sense because in order to be first-degree murder, there had to be malice and a foresight, meaning you had to go into the intending to kill somebody and that clearly isn't the case if it was a completely different crime and circumstances unfortunately led to a person losing their life so but it was a part of all that that tough on crime you know wave that came from the 80s that the spirit of you know ronald reagan and all those guys who claimed they were being tough on crime but really they were just trying to throw people in prison so they could make money off of them um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, but that bill is kind of setting forth to kind of reverse that. So, you know, obviously it's going to reach opposition because that's just the way these things go. But uh, you know, I've been I've been rooting for it ever since it came up. So, uh, mm-hmm. hopefully, it, they they leave the man and let let the man be. I mean, he served his time. And again, like that that ties back into disparity, like not making excuses for any actions, but you know, like, does this person, is it is the punishment really fitting the crime? And that ties right into what disparity is all about. The punishment isn't fitting the crime. We're not saying there wasn't wrong being done. We're saying we don't have to keep wrecking lives unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was wondering, are you working on any new films you can talk to us about? Um uh, yeah, the the, uh, the the one that's in the works right now, and, and I'm still very much uh, in the writing process, but I can, I'll give a little bit of it. It is uh, definitely involved with this entire abortion. Um, oh, that's kind of on the forefront right. of everything. Uh, so that's going to be kind of my next thing. And uh, to tie into, like, related to disparity, you know, disparity, of, I'm not going to spoil it, but it has a twist. And so I'm kind of realizing that my, I think my signature as a filmmaker will be the dramatic twist. And so, like, there's a twist in disparity that won't, I won't give it away, but there is a twist coming that kind of helps highlight 
the whole theme of the film about crack cocaine sentencing disparities. And in my next project, there's going to be a twist that basically gets out what what I want to say about this whole abortion thing. And uh, I won't I won't I won't give it away, but I'm really really enjoying uh, creating this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is uh, are you writing a role for Jeremy in in the new work? <laughs> the role for Jeremy. Uh, in this one, it doesn't feel there like better it. be. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. Sorry, Jeremy. It's not feeling like there's one for you in this one, unfortunately. But uh, I mean, there, there will hopefully be something down the road. No, nah, we have tons of projects that we'll, we're working on uh, together. You know, whether it's in front of the camera, behind the camera, it's it's our connection. You know, like like I said, since since we've been kids. Um, we, we've always wanted to, to tell stories, whether it was to our, you know, stuffed animals. I can remember that we would write plays and act out in front of stuffed animals or getting kids in the neighborhood to act out certain roles and do certain things, um, to creating short films and, you know, and beyond. We've always kind of worked together on um, this platform because we realize it's so, it's, it, it's really incredible because there's, it's such an ability for you to be able to express a belief, um, a concern, um, and, and, and be uninterrupted simultaneously and have people completely engaged with your interpretation of what's going on or what, what the outcome is that you're looking for from your film. And I think that that's the one thing that uniquely about film that not, not a lot of other forms of art have really the ability to do in, in such a dynamic and, you know, like three-dimensionally like that. Um, so it, it's something that we, we use that passion and that creativity. Um, but we also, you know, want to be able to express, you know, how we feel about what's going on in our world today, specifically what's going on in our country today, um, just to provide a perspective and be completely uninterrupted in it. Because now, you know, with so much out there, it's so hard to really get a clear, concise message of what somebody's agenda is, or what they're trying to do or um, how they're trying to impact. It's always distorted, and you you have to question things. But with film, you can you can clearly lay it out, whether it's 15 minutes or 90 minutes. Um, it's uninterrupted, and it's completely silent, and people are engaged with what's going on on the screen, and that's where you have your moment, um, and that's where you have the time to really articulate your message um, in such a way to let people kind of take away what they want from it. But at least mm-hmm. you have the opportunity, and I think film is a great platform for that. Right. And you know it's not silent in in the theater when black people are there. Like, really? It's like it's like it's like a live stage show. But that's that's even better. That's even better. You know, I, I I when I sit in the movie theater I always I can I can attest to so many times when I hear people clapping or I hear people um laughing or you know they're you know like run away run away in a horrible scene trying to direct the character because they know what's about to happen i think that that's 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 also something that's beautiful you know like if you were to go to an art Mm -hmm. gallery and look at art on the wall nobody's going to shout and scream at it and things and and engage with it in that in that manner and i i I under with understanding that now imagine if you have a message that's there that's meant to speak to something that's a little bit more profound Mm -hmm. uh what, what would that impact be what would their response be and I think that that's where film can be a vital tool in the overall progression of our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think about, um, you know, disparity, 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 um, the film and and the scene where, um, uh, where Jeremy's character, um, Sid, 
is um, talking to his friend, and they're sort of reminiscing on when they were kids growing up, and 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 you know, yeah. two two men, you know, um, his friend who is really wonderful actor. I think all of the actors. I like the attorney. Um, oh, Javin, yeah, Javin like, is his name. Javin is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah oh, and how how and and then who's the uh, the woman who plays the uh, attorney? Oh, her name is uh, Leticia Wright. She's Arizona based. She was absolutely just phenomenal. Exactly. Phenomenal. She was. Mm-hmm. It was like she came on set and it was just like just so easy working with her. Like it, it was mm-hmm. like we got ahead of because of her because she was just nailing her take so well that then we just got to experiment and play with things because we had the time. But she was great, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, let's try it this way now. Right, yeah, and then um, and your other lead, he was good, and his mother. Oh yeah, oh Kyle, yeah, Kyle the Rangers, yeah, uh, he played Charlie. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Charlie, guy. right? Yeah, isn't that funny yeah, that he, you know that Charlie? Player. Yeah, it's almost like you know the name Charlie. It was almost like what do you call it? Um, it was almost like a, um, uh, not a metaphor, but. Um, you know, like a, a character that's not really a person. You know, he's he represents a particular um, kind of um, I don't know, not icon, icon, but yeah, he is. Yeah, not a no, metaphor. Uh, every single character is really symbolism. Mm-hmm. Like they're all right, exactly a symbol. Charlie, mm-hmm. you had the suburb kid who things work out much better for. With Sid, he symbolizes mm-hmm. everybody who is kind of getting hosed by the law. Um, with Alexis Wright, uh, or Leticia, she played her. Uh, mm-hmm. she, uh, she symbolizes, uh, one, I wanted to show uh, black people in high, in, in high positions because I knew I had a movie mm-hmm. about a black, a black kid selling dope and I didn't want to just perpetuate stereotypes. So it was imperative mm-hmm. for me to have a character that you see her, she's this expert lawyer and all and she you know, She's got a handle on herself. She does her job well. She's a she's a professional. She's a black female professional, and it was important for me to get that image out there because I think filmmakers need to start taking responsibility for the images that they put out to the world because that's where most people get their information from our media mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So uh, she symbolized kind of that the black professional who can come in, and but also she was the private attorney versus the public attorney. Um, Mm-hmm. Because if you notice, Sid's attorney, you never actually see on screen, uh, not to give mm-hmm. too much away. You just only hear about it, and it's kind of to show that, that absentee legal representation, whereas you see her, she's Charlie's attorney, and, you know, mm-hmm. she's there, she's professor, she's got this big, nice, beautiful office, and you see mm-hmm. his private versus public attorney makes a huge difference, too, because public, mm-hmm. public defenders are just so overworked that they they could they will never be able to give the adequate time needed to give an actual fair representation. And uh, I've mm-hmm. actually learned from talking to attorneys researching the film that a lot of them who want to help, you know, like young black kids or just kids in general, young people, keep help people not completely have their lives ruined, they actually go the prosecution route uh, because mm-hmm. they said you just have more influence. Like, as public defenders, you don't have nearly as much. But as prosecutors, they can say, look, I, I don't have to ruin this kid's life. You know, like, I, I'm, I'm recommending the sentence, and I'm going to recommend something that can possibly be turned around and returned back from instead of 
destroying somebody's life just for the sake of, you know, your own agenda. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, uh, the um, the detective um, who um, like he makes a wager with the other detective on how fast he can get a confession from yeah uh, from Sid about you know whether or not he was making dealing um, crack cocaine. Yeah. It's like wow. Like that line comes. Yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt. But uh, that line, that line comes from the inspiration was he as back mm-hmm. to the symbolism. I I chose a black man to be the cop because I wanted to show people that the way the laws are written, it no longer requires a a racist white cop, a racist white judge, a racist white lawyer for mm-hmm. black people to get hosed by the law. It doesn't require anymore. The federal minimums make it that way. Like, and that's why he heavy he deals on that. He leans on that like. You've got a minimum. He's like, that's it. Like, that's the best you can even hope for at this point. And so that's kind of what the detective is symbolizing. Like, you got a black guy still sitting here acting crazy towards this black kid. Like, he doesn't care either. And so mm-hmm. it no longer just it, it, it no longer requires it to be a racist person or a person of even a different race for you to get destroyed by the system working against you as a black man. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And then I was just thinking, I mean, there's so many so many cases that are, are coming up. Um, you think about Mario Woods, um, you know, mother getting a settlement with the city of San Francisco. You think about the uh, Central Park Nine, those those nine young people that were innocent, that were spent a lot of time, like 10 years, seven years, five years, that that happened 30 years ago, and the current sitting president took out an ad saying, you know, like throw them away, like they're guilty. Mm-hmm. He wanted the death penalty right. for them. I'm like, I'm like, wow. Could you imagine? Like you can't reverse death. I mean, you can't yeah, re- exactly. give them back those years uh, in prison either. But I'm like, wow. And they were innocent. They are innocent. Yeah, and and it, and it happens all the time because, uh, you know, what people don't understand is a lot of these prosecutors and defense attorneys. They have their own agendas because maybe one day they want to be district attorneys, and so mm-hmm. they bully people into confessing the crimes even that they didn't actually commit just because it's similar to how Sid is, you know, like in the film, even though he did actually commit it. But uh, if you've ever seen the, the film America Violet, it's about this black woman who fought yeah, that's a good film. against a drug mm-hmm. charge that was a lie. And, and this is yeah. a common thing like because people are like, well, why would you ever take a plea bargain if you didn't do it? But they don't understand when they come and they say, all right, you take a plea bargain and we'll give you no jail time or you can mm-hmm. face 27 years in prison. Well, uh, people are going to be like, like the lawyers are like, you should just take the deal. You're not even going to go to jail, but now you're a felon. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. with no – and this she goes through this in the film. With no felon, she gets no government assistance if she needs it. It's on her record for life. She's struggling to get a job, all this stuff. So there was all this aftermath effect, but the goal was just about these prosecutors' conviction rates, and they do this, and drugs is their biggest weapon of doing it because it's so easy to do it there because people mm-hmm. won't fight it. They'll just roll over just because they're afraid. Like, who wouldn't be afraid when you hear that you might go to prison for 20 years? Or you right. can get out right yeah. now, but you got to be a felon. And so you mm-hmm. take the deal. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Yeah, true. Yeah, I was just, um, I'm sure you probably know about uh, the San Francisco um, Documentary Film Festival, which started, um, I think, May 29th, and it goes through the 13th. There's a film that's a part of that film festival, and it's at the Roxy uh, Theater uh, on Valencia in San Francisco called Soratorian. Soar, and it's uh, co-directed um, by um, two people. One of them is um, Audrey uh, Candy Corn, and it's about her son, uh, Torian Hughes, who was killed, um, mm, uh, I don't know how many years ago now, but he was 17, I think three years ago now. And um, and this year um, they arrested the person who killed him, and she didn't want, uh, she wanted to have leniency toward the 22-year-old who shot her son. And so they were offering him a deal that if he pled, I don't exactly remember what, but if he, he could actually have 35 years taken off his sentence and he would get out, you know, sooner because, you know, he committed the crime, you know, um, uh, as a juvenile or, I don't know, there's a certain age thing where you get less time. And and his attorney refused. So the, so the kid is looking at, like, 80 years 80 years in prison? I mean, he's going to get out when he's 80? I'm like, oh, my God, that's crazy. Absolutely. Uh, It's like some of these sentences, I mean, in that case, you're talking a violent sentence, but, I mean, the drug Mm -hmm. sentencing is nonviolent. Some of these are are just absurdly large, like, because they hit you with each count, and they're like, oh, each count carries 10-year minimum. There's like 10, 20, 30, Mm -hmm. 40, then all of a sudden, you know, you're like, if I had murdered somebody, I'd only be going away for 25 years. I'm sitting here as a nonviolent drug offender looking at a 60-year sentence. Right. And Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of things. For life, because life. if it's like a third strike, right? Because some people I was looking yeah. at when I was um, sort of looking at different things, like one man, the judge actually quit the bench because he said he, you know, it was a mandatory sentence. So he had to give this man life um, for I don't know, it was like possession, but it was a third strike. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, and he just felt so bad about that. He said, you know, this man, you know, he wasn't a, a threat to society or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why it's so, it's so cool that this festival is, is putting on this thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to be, on, on mm-hmm. being kind of highlighted with my film, but there's so many great films out there. Uh, like I think my brother mentioned the Danny Glover film that I, I was looking into, but also uh, the 5th of July is playing, which actually played at the first film festival I got into, starring uh, oh, Daniel White uh-huh. you know, from Family Matters. So that's going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, he played Steve Urkel Family Matters, but yeah, that film actually played in the festival that we were at before, too, so... There's so many, nice. it's like, it's so lovely to just see like all these black voices and like we're kind of having a renaissance for, for black mm-hmm. artistry right now. And uh, it's, it's, this is the golden age of black artistry because I mean, last year there was so many great black films that came, came out uh, just starring black faces or directed by black faces. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a good time. It's our time. And so like, it's, it's mm-hmm. so dope to be a part of a festival that is bringing right. more and more out of rookie filmmakers like myself, just trying to make it, trying to make a name with something to say. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's who I am as a filmmaker. And right. uh, I think 
that it's great to be able to get the social justice going on in such an artful way because that's the only way I know how to express mm-hmm. myself. You know, I'm not I'm not so articulate like my brother is. Hence why he's in front of the camera. Like I I, I speak. Yeah, with Jeremy is very so, articulate. I I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So many compliments today. <laughs> yeah. For me, I, I speak with the limbs, and so I'm I'm awkward in this situation. But I speak with the limbs, and and I, and I really appreciate anybody giving me the opportunity to just show my craft and show my art and because mm-hmm. I got so much to say and, and that's how I say it. I don't do it with words. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well you're a really great storyteller and I wanna let our audience know that the Urban Pitch Festival from Concept to Screen is also um being highlighted this festival, um uh San Francisco Black Film Festival twenty one. Um, the schedule of Urban Pitch Fest events are uh, the boot camp is Saturday, June 15th, 2 to 4. It's a one-hour session. The reception is Saturday, June 15th from 7 to 10 p.m., one three-hour session. And then the pitch day is Sunday, June 16th from 11 to 5, and there are four one-hour pitch sessions. And so um, uh, the uh, industry professional is Gary Reeves, executive producer, Emmy Award-winning producer, known for... Give Silent Voice the Hit and Women Thou Art Loose on the seventh day. So um, go oh, to, um, yeah, so you can go to urbanpitchfest.com or you can go to San Francisco Black Film Festival.com um, to find out how you can sign up for this, uh, to, you know, talk to industry professionals about your ideas and, you know, get it moving. Um, yeah, and I want to know, do you have a website um, that you want to give us so people can follow what uh, you're up to and... There's like not that? a website up for uh, for me yet because this is kind of like the launch of my career. So uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, it is in the works. I'm building it right now. Uh, once I'm getting cool. everything with my director's reel up, but so I apologize about mm-hmm. that now. But for now, um, you can check out my film Freeway bio. Uh, that's where you can get the most information about me and how to contact me uh, mm-hmm. for anything like that. Okay, super, excellent. So, um, so when are you all headed this way for the um, the Thursday screening, and you're just gonna stay the week weekend? Oh, I'll be there Wednesday because they're showing Disparity Wednesday for the panel discussion. Uh, oh, the Wednesday. The oh, Wednesday. Is that is that next Wednesday? Yeah, next Wednesday. Uh, oh, cool. I've been giving the wrong day. I've been saying Thursday. For that really and the, the Nico the, the <laughs> Nico Wilson documentary. Uh, are both being screened, and then there's a panel discussion, and then um, my film plays Saturday at two at the uh, African American Arts Complex, I believe. Is the Art and Culture Complex, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, seven six two four Central Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so right. it's, uh, I'm playing there Saturday at two, mm-hmm. and also Wednesday at twelve. I believe it's at the Cinemark. Um, gotta gotta figure that out. Yeah, Cinemark, it's at Cinemark, and, right? And, mm-hmm. Yeah. It yeah. Is. But but the event mm-hmm. evening is um is four to six right I thought um uh yes that, yeah that mm-hmm. one the right. the Wednesday one I believe is at four starting at four mm-hmm. um with the films yeah, the and, then, and then the panel discussion mm-hmm. following at five I believe starts then right exactly yeah well cool people will be able to meet you that's awesome and uh, Jerry yeah, are you yeah, coming you coming through as well are you going to be with I will yeah, be, yes. I will also be there Wednesday oh. um, at the panel discussion. We'll be there until uh, Sunday. Uh, cool. Super excited. Like I said, like you know, mm-hmm. thank you so much for taking the time to do this, too. And if anybody that's listening 
It, uh, the at San Francisco Black Film Festival. Um, so the website is www.ssbss.org. Uh, you can check everything out as far as the information, location, times. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, come out, meet us. If you want to talk to us, let us know what you think of the film. Um, and yeah, thank you again for like, you know, like taking the time to do this with us. This is so awesome. Thanks so much. Really great. Oh, yeah. you're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. Look forward to meeting both of you. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having us on. Thanks to T.T. Oh, Wright for uh, us yeah. out. Um, thanks to San Francisco Black Film Festival for letting me in and letting me do this, and to the director of the film festival who was talking before me. Like, thank you guys all for everything you do. Like, I really appreciate it. It's been, like, my birthday was just two days ago, and, like, I found all this out on my birthday, and I was getting all this stuff, so it was pretty awesome. So thank you. Best birthday I've ever had. Oh, you're quite welcome. Look forward to talking to you both in the future about your your next piece, you know, um, in development, when it's when it screens, so we can make sure that folks are in in the seats, you know, to to be able to support the work. Because uh, you're a great storyteller, and uh, Jeremy, you're a great great actor, and support for your brother oh, in ways you. that we are not aware. So um, that's really awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you take good care. Look forward to meeting. Safe travels. All right. Bye, guys. Okay. Bye. Peace and blessings. Bye. So we are going to rebroadcast um, the interview we had with um, the two directors, um, uh, Jeff and uh, and Audrey. But before that, I am going to read a review that I wrote um, last night. <laughs> and um, let me find it really quickly. Oh, shoot. Mm-mm. Oh, here it is. Uh, oh, here we go. Uh, Soar, Torian Soar, co-directed by Audrey Candy Corn and Peter uh, Michini, uh is the story of an active grief ritual. The film chronicles Corn's loss of her eldest son, Torian Hughes, to violence, a parental rite of passage all too familiar to mothers in Oakland. Heart shattered, Candy Corn's neighbors and friends help her literally sort through Torian's belongings, bagged and stacked in the various rooms in the family's West Oakland home. Sorting through her son's items tells the stories of his first crush, wish for a brother granted, and photos reflecting the care he took of his siblings and the great affection he had for mom. Corn shares her parenting values and the degree to which these values countered, even cushioned what her three boys, the eldest, Torian Hughes, a casualty of that contradiction, experienced daily. In a recent interview, co-directors Corn and uh, Machini talk about the decision to not just document her journey, which continues, but share the personal work with a large community. Corn says that she is now inducted into a sea of grieving mothers, populated by the descendants along a familiar ancestral route. At her son's killer's trial, her attorney offered the youth a deal which would have shaved 35 years off his sentence. His attorney refused. Now the 22-year-old is facing up to 60 years. The screening Sunday, June 9th, 2.30 p.m. at the Roxy Theater, 3117 16th Street in San Francisco, as a part of the 16th Annual San Francisco Documentary Film Festival through June 13th, 
Uh, there will be a community forum afterwards with a panel including directors moderated by Otis Taylor. You can visit sfnd.com to get tickets. Torian Hughes' flesh reminds one of Emmett Till's body and his mother, Mamie Elizabeth Till Mobley's decision to grieve in public her son's brutal killing. The log line for Sore Torian Sore is, it takes a community to heal, Ashe. While Till's death became the catalyst for a rumbling, sparked a revolutionary movement, when African American, African America saw visually what hatred of black people produced. Money, Mississippi, August 28, 1955, emblematic racial injustice. Torian's death is the other side of the loss. It is what this mother, these brothers, this community need to do to heal. Corn shows viscerally what it means to lose a child. We never really know how the loss feels in Mobley's body, in Matilda's mother, how her son's death shows up in her inability to function and who is there to help her. The co-directors meet at a protest on Valentine's Day. Corn has been video documenting her various feelings about her son's death. The plan grew from making a personal document to remember to remember Torian to this public statement about a grieving yet breathing mother, a phrase coin phrase corn coins. She says, What I have faced and the trauma that I'm dealing with is something that I'll be dealing with for the rest of my life. Although my story is unique, it is very similar. I have inherited a sea of grieving mothers. Unfortunately the beauty of it is through the pain the Soar Torian Soar short documentary film was birthed. Soar Torian Soar is a part of my healing. I'm continuing to be in the struggle with every day waking up being reminded that I am a current mother of two remaining surviving male children who are current targets. And it's not because of them being menaces to society. It's because I've done everything that society has asked me to do, and now it is time for the community to pour in. You know, you have to be the change you want to see. We agree implicitly that this film would just be, we agreed implicitly that this film would just be very honest and very present and that we would pull no punches, Peter uh, Michinini, uh the other co-director, states, but also to have no melodrama and nothing fortuitous and that it wouldn't drag anything out. But on the other hand, it would not shut down a mother's grief. That would not silence her voice. So um, so that's what I wrote about the film, and I certainly encourage everyone, I'm going to definitely make it uh, my intention to uh, to go and attend on Sunday uh, the, the uh, screening and the panel, the community uh, panel afterwards um, to talk about uh, grief and loss and how we can prevent um, these tragedies from happening. Um, you know, if we support one another and and change, um, ah, gosh, um, the way we respond uh, to conflict. It doesn't have to end a person's life. So here is the interview, and um, yeah, and thank you so much for tuning in for another to another edition for Wanda's Pick. Um, Friday, we're gonna play um, uh, a rebroadcast of the. Um, some of the uh, the interviews that I've had through SF Doc Film Festival. 
2019, which is ending next week, the 13th. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And we are continuing our coverage of San Francisco Documentary Film Festival, which just started yesterday. Today, with a special broadcast, we're going to be featuring directors and um, uh, subjects who um, who have work in this particular festival, which is having its. Um, hmm, I have to ask uh, our guest, which anniversary is it? Look at my notes. Good morning. Is this um, Peter? Uh, Minchini and, and Audrey Candy Corn? Yes, it's Peter Minchini and Audrey Candy Corn. Oh, good morning. How are both of you doing? We're great. Doing well. Excellent, excellent. So what anniversary um for SF Doc is this? I'm looking at my for my program. Ah, eighteen. Whoa. That's pretty awesome. That's good because you don't have it right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's so wonderful to have you all, um, you know, um, presenting um, this really important, important film, um, uh, Soar, Torian Soar. I mean, it's like, wow, um, Audrey, you really, you know, really share, you know, what a mother's grief looks like. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really, really intense. Really, really intense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and your film um, is screening, um, I believe, this weekend, right? June 9th at the Roxy at 2.30 oh, okay. in the afternoon. That's a Sunday. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, next Sunday. Yeah. And, and, and afterwards, there's going to be opportunity for uh, audiences to, to be able to process. So you're going to have... Um, an on-stage interview and community Q&A with both of you, um, mm-hmm. I guess, conducted by Otis Taylor, Jr.? Yes. Uh-huh. That's yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So so tell the audience about, about the film and, and how the two of you um, came together. Um, uh, and so, you know, um, Audrey, you're, 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 uh, the way that you wanted to, to be really public and and what does it mean for a mother to lose a child? It sort of reminds me of um, of um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank now. Um, Emma Till. Well, don't mother. you worry, sister. I could just jump right on in and help you because I am my sister's keeper. How about that, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, mm, but I was thinking well, about Emma Till's Emma Till's mother, um, and and you being like like his mother in not wanting to hush up. Um, you know her mm-hmm. son's killing and and mm-hmm. making it really public so that the nation would know and the com- community and the nation would know what it meant to lose a child and I don't know if you were thinking about that um, after the fact but um, and maybe maybe you could comment on that um, Peter uh, after um, Audrey shares this this you know how you all met and and the reason why you all made this work. Yeah. Well, thank you, sister. Um, first of all, um, I would like to say that I am appreciative to be 
on your platform. So I, I would like to say that, and I'm appreciative to all of your viewers and your fans and just the community as a collective, you know, um, each one, teach one, reach one. And to just pretty much sum it up, um, I am a grieving, yet a breathing mother. That's kind of um, a phrase or um, like a sentence that I kind of like to say or I've coined because um, what I have faced and the trauma that I'm dealing with is um, something that I'll be dealing with with the rest of my life. And although my story um, is unique, it is very singular. You know, um, I have been inherited into a sea of grieving mothers, unfortunately. But the beauty of it is, is through the pain, the sore to a young sore short documentary film was birthed. And um, just really quickly, Peter and I had the opportunity to meet and um we actually met on Valentine's Day, <laughs> and um, I, I, I'll save that story for a little bit later, but we met on Valentine's Day, and uh, I approached Peter, and um, here we are. We've been working on Sortorium Soar because it is a part of my healing. This is um, my journey, and those who have the opportunity to chime in, um, they also have the luxury of turning it off or not listening or turning, you know, a blind eye. But for myself, I'm continuing to be in the struggle with every day waking up, being reminded that I'm a current mother of two remaining surviving male children who are current targets, you know. And um, it's not because of them being menaces to society. It is because I've done everything that society has asked me to do. And now it is time for the community to pour in. You know, you have to be the change that you want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that um, what's really important to note first is that we made a lot of decisions without talking about it out loud. We, mm-hmm. uh, in retrospect, we say, oh, yeah, we agreed that uh, this film would just be very honest and very present and that we would pull no punches but also have no melodrama and uh, nothing gratuitous and um, that it it wouldn't drag anything out. But on the other hand, it would not shut down a mother's grief. It would not silence her voice. There's only one problem with me saying that, though, is we didn't discuss that in advance. We just both immediately knew that's what we wanted. And after the film was done, we start talking about it, and we realize there's this actual list of things that we agreed on without saying out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is kind of... Uh, it, it, people discussing the film need to be just a little bit careful about saying, oh, they wanted to make a film like this. Yes, we did, but it was in the back of our heads, not the front of our heads. There was just so much where we just connected and we complimented each other um, I'm pretty linear, and she's pretty spatial in her intelligence. <clears throat> and so it just worked out um, really well. And and then um, the kind of magic of the film happened after that, if I may go on just for another second. Um, because we had that attitude, we found out that the film just starts all these conversations with people. 
um, because we would show the film, the rough cut, to people to get feedback, and we would show it to people of color, and they'd all say, oh, yeah, that's our life. Um, that's the way it is. And, uh, you know, they had a couple of little minor suggestions or something, but that's it. And then we showed it to very educated um, white people, even people who work in anti-racism, and they often said, um, you have to cut some of the suffering. You have to at least cut mm-hmm. away from her face, we heard. Uh, and, of course, we didn't do that. We didn't change any of those things. But what it did do is it started all these conversations. Why do people of color have one response and you folks had a different one? What does that mean? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. Um, and I don't know, the process uh, of making the film, it seems really um, sort of really fluid. Um, I mean, there are these moments mm-hmm. when, um, I mean, you're you're going through your, your son's belongings and um, and, and there's, there's ritual um, that's a part of it because as you go through mm-hmm. the belongings, you're telling stories um, and then sorting things and mm-hmm. um, learning to let go again um, because these items have, um, you know, they're attached to memory, which is attached to your mm-hmm. son and to the family. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but then, but then, like right, right when you're in the process of actually sorting through these items because they've been accumulating and you have too many um, all over the right. house and bags, um, there'll be like just a window in the you know, in in uh, as a part of the the screen, and I don't know how you do that, uh, Peter, but it's really, really a different way of of, of filming. I mean, it's a, stylistically, yeah. It's like, and and it'd be like, this is where I am right in this moment. I am so sad, and I'm like, wow. And you do that a few times, and I was wondering if you sort of talk mm-hmm. about stylistically how you all, you know, do this, you know, the choices you made and. And how it ends up being just 20 minutes, because it could have been longer, right? And what was the very last question? How did it end the, up the being 20 end? minutes? Like, what were your decisions? Because it could have been longer, but it's just right. Thank you. It's yeah, it's 30 minutes, and uh, there's definitely enough footage to make a feature film there if we wanted to. But, yeah, we did want it to mm-hmm. be succinct. Um, we feel it's more powerful that way. Yeah. And, um mm-hmm. If I might add, it was very important um, without us giving too much away because we do want people to come and check um, the documentary out if possible. But it was very important for us to show the healing that I'm Mm -hmm. going through in a non-traditional way. We didn't want to go about things in a traditional manner. Um, because of the fact that I'm going to speak for myself before this, I was not considered to be a film director. And so not only is this story about me, but I also now hold the title of being a film director, co-film director with Peter Manichini. And Mm -hmm. so um, for myself, all of this is new to an extent, you know, uh, based on my creativity, I often tell people everything that you need is already inside of your DNA. We just have to tap into it, you know. And so it was just very important for us to show me healing 
in a non-traditional way, and those non-traditional ways are some of the um, images and some of the scenes that, that you're talking about, you know. Um, even there's a scene with um, the fire, and I won't go too far into that, you know. Um, there's a scene with the shadow. I won't go too far into that. But all of these um, scenes are actual spaces in my life where I was um, having a break and I either needed a breakthrough or I was going to be broken down. So um, with that being said, we just thought that if we gave what we had, we wouldn't be bothered with how people saw it or thought about it because, again, originally it was not for the world. It was for me. Um, for my memory so that I can remember my deceased son and so that I can have um, proof of my footsteps. And so um, so often African-Americans, sometimes we don't have things to pass on to our children or we don't have money. And so I decided that this could be a gift of legacy and a gift of tapestry that I can give to my children and myself. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was um I was, you know, thinking about about the uh the log line, it takes a community to heal, Ashe. And um yeah. and and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that as well as as talk about um, you know, your son Torian, tell us about him and also tell us about your other two sons, because your family, I just love um, just as you're walking and just being with your children, you know, just the affection that everyone has for one another, like the boys hold hands, and with Torian, the pictures and videos you have of, of him, he's holding his, his siblings, and, and you're hugging, and it's just really beautiful. Okay, well, thank you so much, sister. Um, I think I'll pass the first two questions to Peter as far as the tagline, and then I'll mm -hmm. chime in on the last two questions. Is that okay? Oh, certainly, certainly. Okay, all right, Peter, sure. how do we come with the tagline community? Yeah, we, we finished the film, and I said... Um, that every film has a, a log line, the little statement that's generally at the bottom of the movie poster. And, you know, we'd worked so long together, and I've done a lot of activist work with a lot of people, anti-eviction, anti-war, anti-racism, anti-police violence, and I've met too many um, grieving mothers um, and... Uh, worked with the uh, Bluebird Foundation um, or with Steve um, Stelly. And so I said, well, what if we said it takes a community mm -hmm. to heal, Ashe? And it just struck. It, it just, like, needed to be said, and then it really kind of brought everything together. That's really when we had lots of community people come and help us with the film, and we really felt like there was all this community power. So... I don't want to go too far with that, but it was almost like this magical thing. As soon as we started saying that, um, all kinds of great stuff started happening with us. 
Um, but yeah, those are great questions about uh, Candy Corn and her sons. Those are those, that was really striking to me. Everything that you said, I completely agree. For sure. Um, thank you, Peter Minkini. Um, wow, I I really don't know where to start because um, with the boys, they are just so amazing, and I'm not saying that because of my children, but. Uh, like I mentioned in the film, everywhere I go, people are always praising me um, due to Amir and Zaire. And it's important for me to give that credit back to them because it first starts with them. Children come here with their own personalities. Let's get that straight. And then based on that, you know, we can kind of uh, massage it. But they come here, you know, the way that they are. And so for my children, they are very loving and nurturing and gentle young men. And so when I saw that in them, it was important for me to continue to help them develop that because I knew the world that they lived in would immediately try to strip them of that. Um, the world that we live in, males don't hold hands, and you probably won't see two brothers holding hands. You might see two lovers holding hands, you know. And so love is love across the board. Relationships are relationships that are meant to be valued, and it first starts with the I. It first starts then, secondly, with the family and then the community. But going back to what Peter was saying as far as the tagline, I just want to chime in. Um, we also thought once it all came together as far as it takes the community to heal our shame, and which means and so it is and so it shall be, wonderful, magical things did begin to happen. But I always knew in the back of my mind um, that I also had shared with Peter, and we've been, we know each other, you know, that I have shifted away from saying community and started building on the word village. The word community is simply people stacked on top of each other or living around each other based on um, finances and geographically being trapped to where you have been put based where your parents placed you. And if you haven't been able to migrate outside of that city or that town due to economics or being trapped in your mind, the, the chances is you're just stuck. So for me, um, I move away from community, and that's part of the reason why in the Q&A we're going to speak. It takes a community to heal, yes. But what I found is actually it takes a village because within that community is where you find the healing. And then within that community, there's going to be a village that draws out to you. And these are going to be the people that are going to not be your fans, but they're going to be your supporters and your helpmates. And they're not just going to be people that you know. And they're people that are invested in you, the human being not the project, and that's what the difference is. Your village is people that you eat with, you sleep with, you break bread with, you commune with. And so I have shared this with my children as I have seen who they are. And um, Torian actually asked when he was two if he could have a brother-sister. I said, boy, you got to pick one. Mama can't have a brother and a sister for you. And so he said he wanted a brother. I told him, if you 
um, be um, um, continue to be a good child of God. Continue to be a good boy. Be good to me. Be good to the daddy that you have. I will give you a brother. So this little boy for four years straight was excellent to everybody in the world, and I had to keep my word because I knew that this would be the very first bond. And moving forward, um, I had a mirror, and they never fought. I never had to deal with sibling rivalry. When a mirror came, a mirror said, I want a brother. I said, you got a brother. He said, I want to be a big brother. I said, well, you be good to the brother you got. You be good to continue to be good to me. Be good to the daddy that you got and continue to be a child of God. Well, this little boy continued to ask me and duplicate the same pattern that his elder brother, Torian, had um, started. And mm-hmm. so four years later, here it is, actually five, because they're all five years apart, Torian and Mary mm-hmm. Zaire. Here it is. Zaire comes. I'm a, and I, I, now, here it is. That's why I say the black woman is a god. <laughs> With a little G, no blasphemy, we birth a nation. So I gave birth to these fine three young little human beings. And um, when Zaire came, which is my last child, he said, I want a, a brother. I say, you got a brother. You got two brothers. What do you mean? I'm not going to have a football field. And I, I just might give you guys a girl, you know, because I'm feeling kind of doubtful. <laughs> and um, I did not go forth and give a fourth child. Torian, I had at 17 years of age. He died at 17 years of age five days before Christmas, December 20th, 2015. It's been three years and five months. And um, the reason why you're 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 signing, um, Audrey. Your little your your voice is a little far away. I I can't hear you as clearly anymore. Oh. I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Is this mm-hmm. better? Okay. Yeah, it's a lot better. Um, so I had, I'm sorry. I had given all three brothers their wishes. Each brother mm-hmm. had the brother that they had asked for after five years. <laughs> Torian mm-hmm. asked for Amir. Amir asked for Zaire. And Zaire asked for a brother. Well, I had ran out of names, and I didn't think I had the ability in me to um, birth a, a boy. A girl might have came. <laughs> so the, I said, you know, you guys continue to be good to each other, and I think that um, I'm going I'm going to cut, cut off at this point. Well, moving forward, I had Torian at the tender age of 17. I am now 37 years of age. Torian died at the age of 17. Five days before Christmas, December the 20th, 2015. So I am grateful that um, I listened to Torian because if I had not listened to him asking for a brother, I would not have Amir and I would not have Zaire. And now Amir and Zaire both have the, um, the, the, the gifts that they wanted. Um, Amir always wanted to be a big brother, and so now he actually has, you know, the gift. We didn't expect for it to be like this, but Torian is our great ancestor, and we know that he is looking down on us, and we are definitely grateful for the opportunity to share him and our family's messaging. Mm, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. So that's and, why and Torian. 
Right, right. And Torian, um, this is his twenty. This would have been his twenty-first year, right? He would have been twenty-one this year. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Um, I I want to um share share your each of your some of your bios. Um, uh, Audrey uh, Candy Corn, you are a a leader in the West Oakland African American community, having not only founded Taz. TAZ Foundation, but you're also well known for your work with Poor Magazine, Homefulness, and Decolonized Academy. Uh, you currently work closely with the Hashtag Love Life Foundation, uh, Donald Lacey, um, which provides youth mentoring, services, and education. And uh, as a mother dedicated to moving your family's life forward in a positive way, you have worked as a fashion model, and we see some of those photos of you looking so lovely and fabulous, oh uh, comedian, uh, public access cable show producer, and you have a large archive of video footage of your family's challenges, and you will be making more movies in the future, so we are so looking forward to that. <laughs> and and Peter uh, Men, uh, uh-huh. Men, uh, Mencini, uh, you are yeah. based in San Francisco, and you are a filmmaker, activist, embedded with activists since 2011, and I just love reading about what you've been up to over these many years. Um, in fighting for social justice, you have often risked arrest during uh, building takeovers and street protests as you've used your videography to fight economic injustice, climate change, corruption, and racism. You have worked with Occupy San Francisco, Last 3%, uh, Mario Woods Coalition, Rising Tide North America, Greenpeace, Justice for Alex, uh, is it Natio or Nato? How do you pronounce Nieto. his last name? Nieto. Nieto, thank you. Yeah. Um, ACCE, um, Archbishop uh, F.W. King of the John Coltrane Church, Poor Magazine, yeah. the Frisco Five, and too many others to count. And now you're looking yeah. to donate your eight terabytes of historic video footage you recorded to a historical society, and you want your next project to be a fictional feature film you've been working on since you were a child. Like, wow. Yeah. So have you found um, a place to donate this historic video footage, and um, have you started this fictional feature yet? Um, yes, the um, eight terabytes uh, needed to be taken someplace because I mm-hmm. was forced out of my housing of 27 years, and um, several friends. <laughs> yeah, and several, and I was an anti-eviction fighter. Remember? Um, and Towards the end of us making our documentary, my yeah, yeah, it was so it was kind oh, of a no. while. Uh, yeah, I uh, and. So we needed to donate it before something happened to it. Um, I even had um, the raid system for Soratorion Soar die on us as we were close to the end, and we were worried that we'd lost Soratorion Soar. Mm-hmm. We had to send it back to the mm-hmm. factory and wait a few weeks. So we, uh, uh, one of our friends at one of the um, anti-eviction groups, um, Tommy Avicola Mecca's group, um, bought an 8-terabyte system and we just copied all the data over so that they could keep it and so that future generations can have it and and yeah there's been with Occupy there was this 
one action I can think of where 90 students rushed into Bank of America and took it over, and I rushed in with them to interview people mm -hmm. inside and get footage inside. You know, there's 300 photographers outside during that. I remember looking out the windows and going like, you don't get the good footage. I get the good footage. <laughs> and that's, you know, and that's, that's, yeah, that's my perspective. I want the good footage. Um, there's the <laughs> the beach scene at the end of Sortori on Sort. I was being eaten alive by these little sand fleas. <laughs> they just love my Mexican and Italian skin. And I'm just, like, sitting there shooting that whole sequence and just, like, cringing the whole time. And then I had to get up and run away as soon as we were done shooting there. <laughs> yeah, it took us some time for that, that one. <laughs> so, yeah, I believe in being dedicated to your art. And uh, I'm really proud of uh, not only the work I've done, but one thing is that all the people I've worked with are the most interesting people, the most interesting, powerful activists. I could start rattling off names and... They're, most of them aren't famous now, but in a few years they will be because of um, all the work they've done coming to fruition. Uh, so it's easier to name groups because uh, I don't like to miss people. But Eviction Free SF, um, I was honored to make a film with them. And through their efforts, the combination of their protests and my film, um, this uh, greedy father-son landlord team had to sell six large buildings below market rate for low-cost housing to the San Francisco Community Land Trust. And so mm -hmm. they're still working on them, but they will become low-cost housing for people. And um, it, it's hard to not be proud of that. And I'm, uh, people like Fred Zimmerman uh, and Aaron McElvoy were the leaders in that. But I'm really proud of that work. And as far as um, the feature film, yeah, I really want to make that. It's something that I had the vague ideas for when I was six years old. It kind of started coming together in one form when I was about 15, and then ever since it's just morphed. But the ideas behind it are there, and it's designed to be my ultimate activist film where it really reaches people. Um, and like, like Sortori on Sor, I think it does it without being preachy. That's the idea. It's just real and present. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And uh, Audrey, um, do you have any um, any comments on um, what I mentioned in, you know, in your in your bio um, or any any comments for the audience that you are hoping to have um, at the theater um, on Sunday, June 9th at 2.30 p.m. for the film and uh, more importantly, for for the stories and conversation that comes from your sharing, um, you know, and your family sharing, you know, this deeply personal, yet um, all too common story of loss um, of young people, you know, um, to violence. Yes. Well. Um Thank you. I would like to start by saying that um, I, I thought I had the flyer on me. It must have fell out of my purse. But um, mm -hmm. I am working. I am a um, co, uh, how do you say, well, it's 22 of us. And we have developed the, the Oakland's very first Department of Violence Prevention. Oakland has never mm. had a Department of Violence Prevention. 
And after oh. uh, my son, Torian Desjardins, he passed away, um, I hit the ground running even more so with trying to find out how could I personally create a change here in the city of Oakland where I'm a native and I seem have to not be going anywhere and I want to be able to make it safe for my children and other people's children and all native I mean all people, you know, whether they're commuting in and out of Oakland, it doesn't matter. I'm I have a love for all people. I'm a humanitarian and so I'm just trying to make the world a better place. And in doing that I think that um making sure that Oakland has a department dedicated to preventing violence, um, not po- mm-hmm. not policing the police, not policing our own people. <laughs> um, it has nothing to do with the police at all. It has to deal with it takes the hood to save the hood, us being a village mm-hmm. in the community, you know, and being each other's brothers, sisters, and keepers. And so <clears throat> I worked on this for um, – Two over two years, two and a half years over, and um, the department was voted in two years ago, and so it's here. And on June the 8th, 2019, um, at I believe at Lake Merritt, oh man, I don't like to give wrong information, but what I will say is, is um, we'll give information where the people can connect with us. Um, it is the Department of Violence Coalition. It can be Googled if you just um, Google Oakland, um, Frank Ogawa, and City um, Hall, City, yeah, City Hall. Then all of the information will kind of be there for people to find out and become involved. But we're definitely going to be creating a space there for people to come and see Soar Torian Soar. Um, for free and get involved with this new Department of Violence Prevention. Um, I've helped assist put over $300,000 for this um, department. We've moved $2 million. Um, this is a collective of um, regular, average, everyday people who have just gotten tired of Oakland being so violent. And um, the Libby Shaft, our mayor, is satisfied with the 1% count that we have, and we are not. So I just wanted to say on June 8th, from 9 o'clock to 4 o'clock, we will be in the Lake Merritt area. It was supposed to be at the museum in Oakland, but it was too small. So that's what I'm involved in. Um, My children are the very first children, the Tad (laughs) Foundation, to participate. They gave their mission statement to this department which simply um, says um, the foundation is built on the morals and values of eradicating hatred and violence through approaching life with compassion, kindness, integrity, and love. Three brothers dedicated, but instead of it saying three brothers, it says this correlation is dedicated to creating a love life culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm excited for that. And um, along with um, thepoorpress.net, who has given the boys the opportunity to have Issue Me, Stranger, Danger, Issue Me, that's capital I, then S-H-Y, subtraction sign, capital M-E, 
Stranger Danger Saga, you can find at poorpress.net. And we also want to make sure that people are pouring into the people and the organizations that we mentioned because if it were not for these people, we would not be able to do the work that we do, and I would not be able to get the healing. So Amir and Zaire, really quickly, both are straight-A students. They both are purple belts. Well, let me take that back. Amir has all A's and one B+. He's 15. Zaire has all A's and one C+. He is 10. Both boys are purple belts, and they also do a spiritual dance called Danza for people in the community just to continue to do the good work that they do. So what I'm asking is, for people to pour into these young men, which is the Taz Foundation and Issue Me Stranger Danger, which is an anti-bullying campaign, anti-bullying gear, which is a clothing apparel, along with their book. And this is how we're making a difference. The book and the T-shirt is $20. And um, for every book that's sold, that's how we pay our rent. Our rent is $156 because we are on um, subsidized housing. So with that being said, we are pipelining our way out of poverty, junctioning up with people like um, the Circle of Eight and Hopefulness. And I'm just grateful that you've given us the opportunity again to plug in some of these people in our village to continue to give the gift that keeps on giving, which is being each other's keepers. Wow. Well, thank you so much, um, Audrey and, and Peter, for, for joining us to talk about SOAR, Tori and SOAR, which, again, is um, having its uh, premiere um, Sunday, June 9th at 2.30 p.m. at uh, the Roxy in San Francisco, and then it's going to be followed by a uh, community discussion. And I wanted to ask, if um, Peter, if you could perhaps um, email me um, the the date uh, not the date, but the location of the um, of the June eighth um, um, Oakland Department of of Violence um, Prevention we'll, we'll get um, that to you. Yeah, that'd yeah, be super. As well as links, sure, and and then links to the books and the T-shirts and any other product. I can I can you know sort of bundle that <laughs> with with the right. description so that people and and I'm sure you're going to have hopefully have some of these items on um, the books and the t-shirts perhaps at the uh, screening um um at the Roxy next week. Yeah, we hope to do that and um mm-hmm. uh Candy Corn's Patreon page is patreon.com forward slash Taz Foundation T A Z. Uh so you people can always go there and look at um our trailer is there. Our uh, a few videos uh, announcing um, what we're doing with Film Fest are there. Um, the other thing that I wanted to make sure that your listeners know is that the Roxy Cinema for the June 9th showing is one block from 16th and Mission Park, so it's really easy to get to if you're in the East Bay and um, you want to come check us out. We'd like to support the support. Um, we've been very careful to reach out to the community because we want to. We love to get questions in that 90 minutes from people who go to film fests or people who like documentaries. That's awesome, but it's even better if we also have questions from the community, from oppressed groups who've, um, who've suffered violence, 
um, and who can um, talk about those, you know, two different kinds of reactions that we got and, and join that discussion um, with us uh, because that does, we've just noticed how that's really made healing happen. Yeah. Right. And yeah. one thing that I would like to add is, well, is um and, and then the and then we'll have to, well, excuse me, Audrey, and then we'll have to um to go um to to move on because my other guest has been like in the studio for for about ten minutes now. But we can definitely um you know, have you on again to talk more about, about what you're doing. But go ahead and, and, and give your last um comment. Oh, thank you, dear sweet sister Queen. Well I just wanted to say that um also, once we got through with making um, Soar Chorion Soar, we thought that this would be a definite way that the TAS Foundation and all of the things that you just said would be able to help us monetary because that's part of the reason why I began to cry, you know, um, with not having support of having the house, being able to clean, and all the things that I'm doing in the community. There's no reason why me and the children should be struggling to pay rent and PG&E and have food to eat, you know. So I just wanted to say that I am not on welfare, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm teaching the children how to live and how to work with their hands and how to be creative. So thank you for that. Oh, you're quite welcome. Well, congratulations again on this wonderful work. You know, it's been many years coming, and um, and I hope that, um, Peter, that you have housing. Do you? <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. Okay. It looks like you might be happy, but we won't talk about that now. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. And, um, yeah, I look forward to uh, seeing you in, in the theater. I, I really want to be in the house. So hopefully everything will work thank out, you. but I can be there to see, um, you know, sort of how the story hits an audience, how it hits, you know, the village. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Are you t-